Hey everybody, your buddy Basil here, and uh, thanks for tuning in to Canary Cry Radio. Uh, Gons, are you over there? I yeah, am. I'm over here. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nope, and that's Gons. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We got a just an awesome episode. Oh my gosh, we actually just recorded it. Just, uh, just, just press end on that recording, and um, man, it was just wonderful. I uh, wanted to give a little, I don't know, a trigger warning. That might be a little bit of a hard... Of a hard yeah, phrase to use maybe maybe too intense but yeah, yeah that's too intense but this is uh it's almost like a, a friendly debate or a friendly discussion about preterism and partial preterism and futurism and kind of the the foundations of biblical prophecy and um you know i just want to let you guys know it's you know for for most of the listeners here this is going to be some pretty new stuff maybe some stuff that uh maybe in secret facebook groups you talk talk bad about but <laughs> i just want preterist. you to uh, secret preterist haters um but i just want to say it, it was actually one of the most enjoyable episodes that we've done um what do you think guns yeah it was really good i thought you know brian definitely has good arguments for his position and um uh, you know it, definitely one of those things that makes you want to go study some more so if anything yeah, keep an open mind because uh we're, really we're really losing our voices here we talked for almost three hours um but yeah no it's great and and for nothing else you know i i find that many of us including myself have not done the proper research into the topic and uh he is very eloquent and rhetorically sound in how he explains things so uh enjoy but before that i just want to remind everybody uh you know we still got that facebook popping off we still got face like the sun on youtube we got the joy spiracy theory rocking it with a new format that everybody is loving so if you have not yet checked out any of those other projects we have going on check out face like the sun on youtube that's gonza's video channel and the joy spiracy theory which is my podcast where i talk to uh fringe christian uh influencers and also uh just regular people who have gone through the experience of waking up to the world and uh what do we do after that so definitely check those out uh also what speaking of popping off canary cry news talk every week yeah it has been going great and if you want a fresh look at some of the news stories that you may not have heard and some of them you may have heard uh Told from the perspective of two fun buddies, Basil and Gons, check out Canary Cry News Talk uh, and just search that on your podcatcher. Okay, I think that's about it. Let's get into it, Gons. All right, let's go. It's about thoughts you bring to the text when you read it. That, that it, it is going to inform and guide the way you think about it. And someone else will bring another set of thoughts to the same text and come out totally different. And this is why, because there are ambiguities going on in the text. What I want you to get out of this is that you just be aware. You just be aware that this is sort of the nature of the problem. Again, there are things going on in the text. There are things God does conceal. He did it a lot the first time, and it can be significant points. Things are cryptic. There's the problem of how do I know what an author originally intended. There's a huge problem of how, you know, I say problem. 
just think about what, I, you know, what, what just came out of my mouth. There's a problem with the way the New Testament interprets the Old. Now, there actually isn't a problem because they were inspired. If they don't want to see every passage, every prophecy literally, I, I, I shouldn't condemn them for it. Because I'm not an apostle, I'm not inspired, they were. And because they do that on occasion, again, it should give us pause when we look at the book of Revelation of the New Testament. And again, there's half a dozen of other things we could have gone through here that, that are equally problematic. We just lack certainty. So, I think we need to be honest. Let's just be honest with each other and have charity toward one another. Let's not be obsessed with this. Let's treat each other nicely about it. Agree to disagree. Have fun with it. How boring would the Bible be if you had everything in the can? I mean, honestly, why would you keep reading it? I've run into people that really think they do have everything figured out. I don't know why they keep reading it. What's there to discover? Oh, I'll read this passage and get a buzz, a spiritual buzz or something. Come on. You know, have a little bit of humility. There are lots of things that should keep you coming back to Scripture. It should be fun. You you should enjoy the thrill of discovering things. And if, if you just sort of approach things, you know, and sort of shut certain topics off, You're not going to get to enjoy, again, the thrill of discovery in some of those areas. So I just want to encourage you, again, just to just be open about that, treat each other well. And when it comes to hermeneutics, last thought, use those cross-references. You'll be amazed at what you find. And sometimes you'll wonder, what in the world are they thinking? You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 118. 118. Go at it, numerology people. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, some folks believe that Bible prophecy happens cyclically, where all events ultimately lead to the fulfillment of every yod and tittle. There are times in history where political, military, and religious leaders and their institutions conduct acts that echo what was written down in the scriptures hundreds or thousands of years prior. Such events might be mere archetypes or perhaps even partial or fragmented fulfillments leading to an ultimate fulfillment. And while many of us believe in a yet future fulfillment of many of the eschatological passages written in the Bible, there are good arguments that can be made to the contrary. We want to welcome back Brian Godawa. He has a new book called Tyrant Rise of the Beast Chronicles of the Apocalypse, book one. And uh, Brian, you've been on quite a few times there on this show uh, in the last yeah. few years, but uh, you're back. Trying to be the number one most uh, frequent guest. How's yeah, that? The, the most uh, outside the cage uh, guest. Most prolific yeah, outside writer. the box. Definitely the most prolific yeah. writer in terms of uh, the the you know cauldron of authors that we have uh, you know as guests past guests. I think you've written more than pretty much all of them. Guns. Cauldron of writers. Come on, man! You're just asking for Canary Cry Radio exposed videos to pop up. <laughs> Gosh! And now Brian's guilty by associ- now Brian's guilty by association. We apologize, Brian, but I'm very happy you're here, buddy. 
I am not a part of the Bilderberger group. Excellent. <laughs> that That's remains good to, to be seen. Uh, and I've never been to that grove, that that sexy grove up there in California. <laughs> you don't have to pretend to not know the name. Oh, you know that that grove. Uh, yeah, you know Dull. the. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, let's get serious here. Serious. Now, let's see. Nine um, Eleven. Who did it? Who done it? <laughs> oh, gosh. George Bush. <laughs> Correct. That's not entirely wrong, although it may not be entirely right either. You know, it's a conspiracy. All <laughs> oh, George Bush, always, always yeah, Bush. just alone, acted alone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the greatest. No, yeah, the, lo- the lone president sh- trigger or something. The lone president <laughs> oh, sh- shooter. We're gonna get in so much oh, trouble. Uh, this is gonna be a fun one, everybody. Um. Okay. All right. Here we go. So yes, uh, we we got you on the show. You've you've got a new book out, and we're get, we're definitely going to talk about that. But we got a lot of stuff to talk about. I think right there, Brian. We got the time. We got the time. We've got we've blocked out seventeen hours to record this episode. <laughs> the marathon. We're going for a, we're going for another world record. Yeah. Woohoo! We'll see. Yep. And I've I've lost all of my internet tabs. So you guys carry this while oh, i gosh. get my internet tabs back <laughs> can't function without internet tabs well you know brian no. you know you you reached out to us with your new book and you know uh talking about wanting to come back on and talk about it and part of it was it was really interesting to get that email from you because you know i mean we've hung out we've had meals together and all this and you were very tentative in your approach saying you know oh, i don't understand if you guys Will never talk to me ever again. It's very, it's very emo, you know. I, what was going on with that email? Well, let me tell you. The new book I have, Tyrant Rise of the Beast, is a book about the end times. It's a book about the last days, the end of the age. But it is not the typical view that most Christians have, which is called futurism. That is, it's not the belief that. Uh, most of the uh, book of Revelation is still yet for our future. It's actually a different way of interpreting Revelation that has to do more with how the book of Revelation was mostly has mostly occurred in the past, actually. And Heresy. it's a very sh- yes, exactly. And that's the ve- that's the very the first thing I've actually been called a heretic already. Um, and it's it's very shocking because a lot of Christians aren't used to hearing it. Sure, there's oh there's lots of debates about. Pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, uh, mid-tribulation rapture, and all that kind of stuff. But what many Christians may not realize, I think they're getting to realize it more now as the view becomes more well-known. But nevertheless, I still think um, a lot of Christians just are not very familiar with this viewpoint. And, and it's called preterism. And uh, preterism is basically a Latin word that means the past. So it's basically a generic reference that says you know, the end times are in the past or the last days are in the past rather than futurism, which is the end times are in our, our future, right? And right. so that's the that's the sort of gen- generic picture. And, you know, even as I just expressed that to you, you know, as you said, um, a, a lot of Christians react immediately uh, with uh, usually hostility because it, it they immediately assume that it means that the, it's a denial of the return of Christ or you know, whatever. It's a denial of all the systems that they're used to being taught, used to being thinking that their view is the, the true biblical view. And so, in, to some degree, I can understand why people might react that way, because I reacted that way many years ago when I first was, uh, came into contact with this view. But I wrote the book as a novel. 
And the novel, and because, you know, there's plenty of theology books out there, um, and, but, you know, as I talked on your, on your shows in the past, I had that whole novel series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, and that talks a lot about the Watcher paradigm and the Divine Council worldview and Deuteronomy 32 worldview, that kind of stuff. And, um, <clears throat> but what's interesting is this new series, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, actually continues that paradigm um, into my storyline, and it, it tells the story of the first century church right after the book of Acts, that it's a time period from around uh, 60 AD to about 70 AD, uh, where uh, and it tells the story of the beginning of the story is with Nero, Nero Caesar, uh, the the great fire of Rome, and Nero Caesar blames that on the Christians, and he's the one that launches the massive persecution on Christians that uh, began in the first century, and. Um, and then it leads up to, ultimately, the destruction of the Jewish temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD. And this time period is the storyline, is the story I'm telling that, um, you know, like I said, I actually, I think there's a lot of Christians don't really know the f- amazing, fascinating historical details about that time period. Right. But also, secondarily, um, or in addition to that, I'm integrating this worldview, this understanding of, of the book of Revelation as it is applied to the first century. So I'm telling the story uh, when the, the Apostle John's still around and, and actually when he wrote it. And, uh, you know, of course I'm fictionalizing because we don't know a lot about that. But um, so I'm kind of telling that story and, and I'm telling it in the vein of a kind of a Da Vinci Code thriller where, um, you know, a Jew, a Christian, and a Roman are actually. Um, walk into a bar. Yeah, walk into a bar. <laughs> <laughs> Where can I get the end times? Well, let me tell you. <laughs> so, you know, they, they get commissioned by uh, Nero to hunt down this letter that he, he's heard that's floating around that's seditious and talking about the fall, you know, assassinating uh, the emperor and all this kind of stuff. And of course, it's the book of Reve- it's the letter of Revelation. And so mm-hmm. the, their journey as they're searching out this letter takes them all around the you know, the Roman Empire and the seven churches in, in, in Asia Minor, and they end up in Jerusalem. And that's just sort of the, the basic storyline of the, of the first book, you know. And so it's an it's exciting thriller, and then I integrate the theology in it. So I'm trying to sort of paint the picture of the first century, what it was like when John was writing the book of Revelation. And in that sense, it's not, I, you know, it's not necessarily controversial because, you know, uh, I'm just telling the story of actual historical events that did happen. Uh, the controversy will come in in, in terms of um, how I do apply the book of Revelation and how it's interpreted within that ancient time period. Right. right. You know, that sounds actually really fascinating. And at, at, on a novel level, on the, uh, on the level of a uh, novular piece of writing, which is a word I just made up, um, that, sounds <laughs> real, like, that sounds like a riveting storyline. That sounds like something I want to dive right into. Um, it is. My fans are actually saying it's my best book yet. And like I said, dude, I have all the gods of the nations and the watchers just like I had in the whole you know, Nephilim series. There's only one giant, though. But the giant that appears in my story is an actual documented case, uh, um, a, an actual warrior in the time of Nero. Nero it was one of Nero's favorite um, warriors. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I, I, I employ that whole paradigm where I show the spiritual warfare that's going on behind the curtains, you know, so to speak. So I have the historical events and I have the demonic warfare going on as well with Satan and his minions and what they're trying to accomplish and how it's all coming to a head. And, and so basically, um, 
you know, my goal is is to write an entertaining story, uh, like a like you're watching a movie. That's my one of my primary goals. But then, even no matter what you do believe about Revelation, I guarantee you will learn a lot about history, about the, this historical time period that a lot of Christians don't know about, and and um, and you know, you may be challenged with a different way of seeing things, but nevertheless. You're going to learn a lot about th- that history and a lot about the, the context of the first century. And, in fact, so much so that I, I footnoted the novel, which is not something you normally do, but I did that because I knew that it's such a novel viewpoint to many people that they would be shocked when they read it. And I, I, I just knew that a lot of Christians would, would read this and go, what? He's making it up. That can't be. So I decided to footnote it so people, when they're reading it, if they really get that question in their head and they want to see, they can find out um, where I got the information from. And the footnotes or the endnotes are not just citations of, oh, this book, this page. I actually uh, cut and paste some significant portions of actual scholarship um, to, to, to explain, you know, where I get things, you know, right. and um, – so, yeah, that's that's sort of the basic intro. That sounds awesome. And, you know, here's one thing. We're going to be discussing um, preterism or, or partial preterism and all sorts of stuff like this, which is going to be kind of a touchy subject, and we're not going to pull any punches, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a topic of discussion. But I think more than anything, it's... Uh, it's going to be a good discussion because uh, a lot of people don't fully understand it or haven't had, uh, you know, the, the concept Exposure. fully explained and, and had it exposed to them. Um, and, you know, if nothing else, I can just hear some listeners get, just getting getting that steam building up in their, in their brain minds. And uh, I just got to say, this is going to be a good chance to learn about it uh, by, from a couple of friends who are figuring it out. That being said, I got to say, when it comes to the book of Revelation or the letter of Revelation as it was before, um, you know, people have been reading this and interpreting it and looking around them and seeing things happen around them for 2,000 years. And, or, you know, and, and you know, it, there's always been Oh, we're in the end times. The end times are coming. I mean, there's there's records all throughout history of people thinking the end of the world uh, is coming. So, you know, I think it's an interesting putting that in context. It's interesting in the uh, in the discussion of preterism or partial preterism. It's very important because, as a matter of fact, um, I, I simultaneously released a, a second book, and that book is the theology book, and that's called End Times Bible Prophecy. And if you, if you buy Tyrant Rise of the Beast, you'll see a little ad in there for the End Times Bible Prophecy. Basically, if, if you want to go into more Bible study, it'll help you go, go in that direction as well. But, and in that book, I tell my own journey, my own story of how I changed my viewpoint many decades ago. I, um, I'll, this will date me. Um, I, I basically, you know, came of age in my faith and in my understanding of the end times, uh, when, when Hal Lindsey was, was really big. Now he was big in, you know, the late seventies. Um, and, uh, I became a Christian or like around 79, but anyway, um, so I was introduced to the, to really what is called dispensationalism, um, or dispensational premillennialism. I, I don't want to get too technical about it, but I also don't want to talk dumb either. So, but basically the Hal Lindsey sort of approach to um, the end times was 
was massively huge. In fact, um, it's pretty much the precursor to the Left Behind, which of course we all know Left Behind right. and 60 million sold with the books. But guess what? Um, 60 million sold of like what 14 books, but once <laughs> one single book by Hal Lindsey called the late great planet earth in, in like 74, something like that. sold 30 million. So in a way he was even bigger than left behind, especially in his time period. So, um, so I was raised in the very typical understanding, you know, that many Christians have, and yeah, there was going to be varieties and differences of course, but I'm, all I'm saying is I, I, I came of age in that, and, and it was very exciting. I mean, it was very exciting to think, wow, you know, the Lord could be coming soon. And, and it, it was a challenge to me to get my life together and to share the gospel with people. And it was a way to challenge other people to say, hey, are you ready to face God? You know, Jesus is coming in the clouds, and, you know, uh, are, are you ready to face him? You know, do you, you know, a chance to talk about the gospel. And that was certainly a good positive context, I'd say, in general. But there's, there's, um, a, there are other negative contexts from believing that way. But nevertheless, over the years, one of the major um, uh, influences that made me change my viewpoint, it, which I still say to this day is, and that, so this is, we're talking over 25 years now, is precisely what you mentioned, Basil, and that is um, that the, uh, the futurist um, interpretations and predictions have been wrong for centuries. Um, but even just, even though I just say within our own fifth, within the last 40, 50 years, when this viewpoint was the most popular, they, and they change every five years or so. And so in other words, if, if I pick out a typical popular prophecy book now and go over what, you know, well, this is what Ezekiel means. This is what, you know, Matthew 24 means. And you go back and you look at Hal Lindsey, you'll see everything's completely changed because, because, you know, news has changed. And so, for instance, in the 70s, there was nothing about Islam in the end times. Now, there are people who are saying maybe the Antichrist is Islam, right? Is Islamic or Muslim or whatever. Right. And so, um, yes, logically, it's true that um, just because they're wrong in the past doesn't mean they're always wrong in the future or wrong now. But it certainly makes you f have to question a system when everyone is always wrong over and over and over again. And that's at least, you know, that's not proof. I'm just simply saying that's something that really should start to make, it, it made me start to rethink and say, well, maybe there's something, maybe it's not the individual interpretations, maybe it's the system. And, and it made me open to, to explore what other views are there about the end times. And that was, I was surprised to know, because back in that, back, I think people are, Christians are more educated now, but back then there was only that one viewpoint. And so, you know, if you hear any of the viewpoints, like that's heresy. And then when I, when I studied and realized, oh, there's not just a premillennial view, there's an amillennial view, and there's a postmillennial view. And all of these are within the pale of the Orthodox Christian faith through all of history. And many godly men have make some good arguments for all the views. And I was really, it, it made me angry, actually, to be honest with you, because, again, I think, I, I'm hoping today things are a little bit different, but at least in my experience, I wasn't taught these views. I was taught, though, this is, the, this is what the Bible says, and I wasn't taught, well, there are different interpretations, and this is why we believe this is, this, this is the correct one. And so, when I, like I said, when I started to, to read these other viewpoints and realize, and they started answering questions that, that the typical view didn't answer, um, yeah, I, I struggled with anger at first, but of course I got over it, and I'm I'm okay now. I'm I'm under anger therapy. So, <laughs> so you but uh, you know too. that that was that was a 
major, major turning point. And to be honest with you, the, the, the other second major turning point for me um, came when I when um, my personal interest in history, like I mentioned to you, that this time period between around uh, 40, okay, at the end of the book of Acts, we, you know, we, all, we study the Bible, we go, and, and we get up to Acts, and Acts ends. That's, you know, what, like in the 40s or something. And then that's it. And then we jump to the Reformation or we jump to, you know, whatever, pick your favorite era that people jump to. And rarely have I ever heard anyone teaching about what happened in the, the, um, the Jewish revolt that began in 66 AD that ended up resulting in the, in the total desolation of the temple and the city of Jerusalem, so much so that the temple has, has never been rebuilt since then. And, it, and so what I'm saying is, I soon discovered that this event was massively significant, not only historically, but theologically for both the, Jew, the Jewish religion and the Christian religion. And, and so to not know what was going on and, and how that fit together, I thought was, you know, something, a real lack, a real lack. And so um, right. I, started, I started reading the guys that would tell me about that. And they happen to be, you know, you mentioned earlier, partial preterists, but I'm just going to use the generic term so that People aren't confused. We can explain the difference in a minute. But so these predators were explaining the stuff, and and it started making sense to me, you know. And um, but the other element that that that, and this will be the last thing I'll say um for now is the other thing that really got me. It started back then, and it and it kind of came into the present. Was there was a real intent to um understand the poetic, figurative. Uh, creative language that the Bible uses, and to understand it in its, in its ancient original context, something that started changing my way that I see the Bible, and that ultimately when Michael Heiser started writing his works, it immediately clicked with me because I had already been in that mode of thinking of saying, well, now, wait a minute, before I, if I read a text like a Bible prophecy that is clearly using creative language of some kind, right, you know, yeah, it's talking about a historical event, but it's, it, or a historical prediction of some kind, but it's using very creative or figurative or poetic language. Do I, do I interpret it through, through my uh, cultural worldview, or do I look back in the Old Testament and look back in other places in their time period where they wrote the same things to find out what they meant by it, you know? Cla- you know, classic case in point, um, I won't go into it now, but just I'll lay it out. You know, the sun, the moon, and the stars, you know, the sun, sun, the moon goes dark, and the stars fall from the sky, and, and our, our modern-day post-scientific worldview, Western worldview, we look at that, and our initial implication is like, oh, that must be astronomical phenomenon, you know, because we think of physics and science and all this kind of stuff. But if you look back throughout the Old Testament, you'll find that this is a very common um, refrain that is used over and over again. And if you go back in the Old Testament, you find out what it means, what they, how they meant, and you can see then, oh, now then that's how my, I would, that's how the New Testament writers who would be steeped in the Old Testament, that's how they would be using the same terminology. And that's the sort of principle of what launched me into this viewpoint. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, alongside all the other debates going on uh, theologically, you know, the use of poetic or figurative language is also a very heated debate where, you know, you have people wanting very earnestly and, and very 
for, for the most part, honestly and rightfully, you know, wanting to take the Bible at its word and wanting to uh, take it, you know, take it word for word. But then you get to Revelation and, you know, if you're going to take it literally, you really, I mean, you're, you got to really make some, you got to reach for the stars, if I may. Um <laughs> Because, I mean, you got dragons, you got scorpions, you got, and we spend all this time saying, oh, well, the dragon could be this, and the locusts could be this, and the stars falling, well, that could mean this. But, you know, you kind of, it's almost been the culture where you kind of have to switch into this, like, figurative language in Revelation, where it's it's very much resisted throughout the rest of the Bible. Yeah, that's true. And and like you said, I agree that, um, in fact, the, the very first chapter I write in End Times Bible Prophecy is uh, the, how, how literalism corrupts Bible, interpret- or Bible prophecy interpretation. And I, I use that as a little bit of exaggeration, but what the point that I mean is, while it comes from initially, a, a like you mentioned, a very good uh, intent, you know, it's like, we want we want to take God at his word, and we want to, um, you know, believe what he says, even if it's miraculous, right, or even if it doesn't fit what we think it should, whatever, you know, it's it's an elevation of God's word. However, what we miss is, but when you are reading it in English, without knowing the original context from thousands of years ago, and and all that all that goes behind it, you are actually more likely to misinterpret it than you are to interpret it correctly. If you, if you interpret it literally, this, this notion of, you know, oh, well, I just take the Bible literally. And a lot of Christians will say that as an argument when you start to try to explain things. Well, this is why I believe, for example, the sun, moon, and stars is a figurative notion. And they say, well, I, take, I believe the Bible is li- literally. And to which I reply, well, no, you don't, because there's not a single person and I, I bet my, my bank on this, there's not a single person who takes everything in the Bible literally. So the question is, so, so the question is not, do you take the Bible literally? The question is, what do we take literally and what do we not take literally? And this is where a little bit of humility in our hermeneutic must take place. And, and by the way, I, you know, I'm, I say this for myself as well, is that the bottom line is, is that scripture is an amalgam of creative writing, history, uh, poetry, sometimes within the very passage, within one passage, you'll have figurative, figurative and poetic language interwoven with historical language. So the problem is, is we have to admit that it's a difficult task at times, and so you have to take some of it literally and some of it figuratively, but it's not always easy to know how. And the best way that I would argue that you begin to understand, well, what should we take literally and what figuratively is the sola scriptura principle that is, or I'm sorry, maybe that's not the right principle, but the principle of um, the first l- rule of Bible interpretation is scripture interpret um, scripture. To, yeah, let scripture interpret scripture, at least first and primary. In other words, if this notion occurs in other places, well, let's go there and see if we if if the context can make it a little clearer for us, and the the accumulation of all these these you know this sort of interpretation helps you get a better idea what I think it, it means. Because in some places it's clearer than others, in some places it's not. So, um, but yeah, I, I can't tell you the amount of times I've heard people just respond to me with this, this, you know, I take the Bible literally. And we just have to get past this sort of, to say that the Bible is poetic is not to say that 
it's a fairy tale. It's not to say that it's made up. It's not to say that it's false right. or myths. Right. It's just, just simply to say it uses very creative, poetic language. Yeah, and that's you know you look at Second Chronicles thirty verse twelve, and you know I I like to use this with um in in discussions with other. Uh, other topics regarding the Bible and, you know, co- the cosmology of things, you know. Um, but Second Chronicles 30, 20, 12, I've brought it up with people who say I take the Bible literally. And it, and it says, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And I mean, most people understand that, okay, the Lord was with them and, you know, they had one heart, right? But yeah. they, they yeah. don't. They don't think, okay, God's hand, a physical hand was on the people of Judah and then their heart, you know, all their hearts became one giant globular mono heart that all the people, you know, it's not mono heart. So, yeah, yeah. And, and even the word heart itself right. is a figurative metaphor right. for your inner person. Yeah. So, but, and the truth is, is I think many, even f- look, even the f- most fundamentalist Christian, uh, will acknowledge this if you if they face some of this you know right. but i think they're just fearful of the slippery slope well if we start talking too much about poetry and figurative language then we're going to go down that slippery slope again i realize they're trying to protect the bible but in so doing i think they're actually hurting biblical interpretation well, right. and there's this assumption that you know and it's a rhetorical assumption which is to say that you know you don't take the to say that the Bible the Bible is literal is to say that it's true, and to say that it's not literal is to say that it's not true. Right, and that's, and that's a false equivalency. Yeah. It can be not literal in in a word for word sense, but it can still be absolutely true. And that sh- you know should be kind of a, a ground floor of understanding when having this conversation, because I see a lot of times in this conversation, one person might be saying, no, you can't take it literal. I mean, you, you have like dragons coming out of the sea. And I mean, that might happen, but also it could be like this other thing, like, you know, and then so that's not taking it literally. And then the other person is saying, oh, well, you're not taking it literally. So you must not think the Bible is true. And that means that you just think Jesus was some cool dude in sandals. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, for me, um, even as a preterist, even as a person who believes there's a lot of mythopoeic uh, language, there's a lot of poet, poetic language, I admit that, but it's not always the case. And it's not always easy to, to, to know for sure. Um, and so I certainly believe there's a lot of literal references as well. Um, let, let me give you, you know, to try to uh, bring it even more on topic, um, th- this is another this was another major turning point for my own understanding. Um, in the book, End Times Bible Pro- Prophecy that I have out, I, I basically explain, the first part of the book, I explain some of the stuff that we're talking about. Like, I go into the Old Testament, and I, I talk about what I would argue is not very controversial stuff. In other words, it doesn't matter what viewpoint you have at the End Times, you should be able to agree with me. And I go over some of these poetic notions, like, for instance, uh, when... When Old Testament prophecies talk about the sun, moon, and stars, when Old Testament talks about, um, you know, all the nations and some of these terms and phrases that we might hear are popular. And I go back in the Old Testament and I show how they're clearly, um, you know, figurative or poetic references of something. And then I go into uh, uh, 
Matthew 24, because Matthew 24 is Jesus himself talking about the end of the age, right? And so, and certainly, you know, if we're all, most all of us are familiar, that's a, a really key linchpin in understanding uh, the last days. Well, my, my transformation, like Revelation was way off in the future for me in terms, I mean, in terms of figuring it out, but Matthew 24 was a lot more approachable at, and, and the number one issue that started to turn my my mind and understanding was um was the phrase that jesus uses in in matthew 24 now remember matthew 24 is actually a part of matthew 23 it's one there's there aren't chapters in the original right and so the chapter 23 is part of that and and so uh, the point is is that um Jesus t- is talking about in Matthew twenty three. He's talking about all these um, the uh, uh, the scribes and, and and stuff and and the Pharisees and all that and how they're 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 rejecting they rejected God's prophets and of course they're going to be rejecting the Messiah. Right? I'm going to try and find my place there. Um, Matthew twenty four. And so Jesus is is talking to them and he's just come off of a, you know a bunch of chapters where he's condemning them basically and he says, look. You guys are so hypocrites, and you build the tombs, whitewash tombs, all the stuff he says on you. Or said, you, you said, oh, we wouldn't, you know, uh, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part in shedding their blood. And he goes, on the, on, on the contrary, fill up the measure of your fathers. This is in Matthew 23. He says, you're super serpents, brood of vipers, right? He goes, I sent you prophets and wise men. Some of them you killed and crucified, flogged, blah, blah, blah. And on you, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth. Who's the you? It's the, it's the Pharisees and people who he's talking to who are doing what? Rejecting Messiah. So he's saying, look, all the people before you killed the prophets, but you're going to reject Messiah and you're going to have the blood of all of him on, on yourself. And, he sa- and then he ends by saying, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What does all these things mean? Well, Matthew 24 then explains, he starts out saying that your house is left to you desolate, he's going to destroy the temple, and then we get into the litany of things, right, that, we, that leads up to the Christ coming on the clouds, and, and at the end of chapter 24, it's like a bookend, he says the same thing, he says, truly I say to you that this generation shall not pass away before all these things take place. Now, I had always been taught, well, Oh, that must be, you know, since these things hasn't, haven't taken place, the assumption right, right off the bat, right, assuming something, then he must be talking about some other generation, some future generation. He's talking about the generation that will see these things take place in the future. Or maybe the generation is the race of the Jews. None of these things is what that term in Greek actually means. And if you look everywhere in the Gospels, and particularly Matthew, uh, but all of them, where Jesus talks about, that uses that geneha, this generation, it's always the people he's speaking to, his generation. And it, it's, it's so, in fact, it's so consistent that every time he says this generation, he's also judging them. Like he says, this generation shall not stand up at the judgment against Nineveh, right? And he, he's, in other words, whenever he's saying this generation, he's also, he's also explaining that this generation will be judged for rejecting Messiah. So it's no surprise then that in Matthew 24, he's going to be meaning the same kind of thing. And when I started seeing that, well, if Jesus is saying, regardless of what I may think, Matthew 24, you know, I think it all happens in the future. But if Jesus says, no, this generation 
It will happen to this generation, and they, they won't, not only that, but this generation will pass away. Generation is about 40 years, right? And so, oh, well, if Jesus is saying that this is the hermeneutical key to understanding when these things were interpreted, then I started prioritizing that and reinterpreting these other things that he's talking about. And, and it starts to make sense because, you know, as I would argue, um, as a matter of fact, the temple was destroyed, as Jesus said, your house is left to you de- desolate, right? It, it, it was destroyed within a generation, within 40 years of when he said it, in 70 AD. And so, that actually actually took place. And there are, there are many scholars who will actually acknowledge that, um, and, but still say, but nevertheless, half of Matthew 24 is still in the future, um, to which I would, I would dispute, but nevertheless, that's my basic paradigm is that if he gives the if, if it's so important that he says it in the beginning and he says it in the end then everything in between must be interpreted within that basic paradigm and that's what started me shifting me to say okay well then w- did these things maybe occur in that first century even even if i didn't think they did and sure enough if you go through them step by step as i do in the book you'll find that um not only you know not only did they happen but they happened in a way that couldn't happen in the future. And, um, you know, for example, I think some of the things that, you know, look, no matter what I believed through all my Christian life, I always had problems with, you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. Right, right. (laughs) Famines and earthquakes. I'm like, come on, Jesus, that's every single, every single generation. There's wars and rumors of wars, literally through all of history. So it's like, how could that really be of, you know, I, I mean, if I was being honest with myself, I just said, I, I've really said, you know, I would say like, Jesus, come on, that's like a little bit too vague to really be a proof for it to be, um, to be a prophecy of any kind. Right. Yeah. But then I discovered there was, oh. there's one time period where this would make sense. And guess what? That time period actually happened to be exactly in that time period of Christ. It was called Pax Romana. Pax Romana means the peace of Rome, and what it was was when Augustus um, basically solidified the, the Roman Empire and it began to establish itself, it basically conquered that, the known world as they, as they understood it, right? And, and they called the peace of Rome because all the nations had stopped their wars, because they were all under Rome's power. And that was a very common phrase, even in the time of Christ. So, that would make sense if, in your, if you're in this time period where they're called, well, you know, we're under the peace of Rome. He says, well, there will be wars and rumors of wars. That now becomes something that's significant. And sure enough, after Christ died and rose again, after the book of Acts, in that time period around 60, even the secular historians like Suetonius and Tacitus write about how this became an explosive new time period where the peace was gone and, you know, we had wars here and wars there, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, that's just one, but I could, you know, and we don't have to, but I could walk through each one of these and and examine and and you start to see wow they aren't just generic prophecies like you know famines and earthquakes well those happened in every time period but they're very relevant in that particular time period right wow that's fascinating yeah you know and and I've I've heard good lectures and stuff that uh, argue the preterist point of view and I, just to clarify are you a partial preterist or are you like a full blown like everything went down Jesus came back yeah okay yeah no that good good question yeah so. So, uh, and then then this is more well-known nowadays, so you do have to make a distinction. Preterism means uh, 
uh, all or some of the prophecies have been already fulfilled. And within the preterism camp, there's two basic ones, full preterism and partial preterism. Full, preter- full preterism would is considered by most uh, to be um, um, heterodox, meaning it's not it's not because it does it believes that everything the second coming of christ the resurrection of the saints and the final judgment are all metaphorical for some, for what happened in that ad 70 event they believe everything was fulfilled in then at that time period and um that that denies that denies key elements of all the Christian creeds through all of history. And while creeds do not, you know, creeds are not scripture, but they do basically define what Orthodox Christians were throughout history, and it's never been accepted in that level. But partial preterism is the view that, no, there is still, basically, we believe there's still a physical return of Christ that's going to occur. There's still a um, uh, a physical resurrection of everyone and a final judgment, and that that is in the future. So that's why we, you know, we sometimes say, you know, most of the, the prophecies, you know, so that um, there is that in the future, but it's a very minimalist view of that. And there's not enough to draw from to find out what's going to happen around those events. Uh, because in the partial predators view, the book of Revelation that you think, well, it does the book of Re- Revelation spell all that? Well, not if you believe that it's basically talking about that 70 AD judgment and when you when you understand that, then you realize, well, yeah, some in the book of Revelation does project, a, you know, into the future, but just a very little bit at the end. The book is basically written to describe that that destruction and what it means. And but I want to say one one other thing that I think is really important here. When you you know when you when we start to talk about systems, no doubt you know, like I can bring up one verse and start talking about it. And, you know, if, you, if you're in another system, you're going to have a dozen questions. But what about this? But what about that? You know? But I do think that if you first understand the big picture purpose of everything, I think that that will help to understand some of the details. And just to, just to explain the big picture, what's, what's the point then? If, if most of this was all about 70D, well, why? What, why is it? And then what do we have to look forward to, right? Well, we do have to look forward to the return of Christ, but Apart from that, the purpose of Revelation, as I see it, and the purpose of the last days is this. When you read uh, Matthew 24, and Jesus talks about the end of the age, this is another one of those Greek-slash-ancient Hebrew sayings that we, if we read it, we assume our modern Western, well, the end of the age, that's the end of the world, the end of the universe, right? No. The word for age is aeon, which is basically like saying the end of an era. And the end of the age, if you look, if you do a study on, on um, the last days, you will find that the writers of the New Testament actually believed they were in the last days. They literally said these were the last days. And w- so what does that mean? The big picture that I would say gives it meaning is they're basically talking about not the last days of the world or the universe, the last days of the old covenant. In other words, they were saying when Messiah was, would come, the whole point about the Old Testament was the Messiah would be the age to come. We were in the present age, and the Messiah would bring the age to come, which is, you know, messianic age. Now, they, mis- they misinterpreted what that age would look like, but nevertheless, the last days are the last days of the Old Covenant. And, when, and, and so, when you read Revelation, then, you see, okay, 
the Christians are being persecuted. It basically Christianity is almost being wiped out. So Christians are probably losing their faith, not, I mean, uh, losing their hope type of thing, you know, being persecuted, being killed, all this stuff all across the empire. And they're starting to think, well, maybe, maybe this whole kingdom of God thing was, was, you know, wasn't what, what he said it was, et cetera. Right. And so John writes the letter to encourage them to say no. He writes to the seven churches that are in Asia who were experienced, and he writes to them very specifically. It's very specific historical issues were going on, and they were already being persecuted at, at that time. And, you know, you read a lot about the martyrs in the book of Revelation. Why? Because they were in the midst of the Roman persecution of the Christians. So he's basically saying, look, the basic, I think the big picture purpose of Revelation is John is encouraging the martyrs. Christians, all Christians, but specifically, so many were dying. They wanted to encourage them that you are not dying in vain. Christ will vindicate you, and Christ will be vindicated. And and don't forget, you know, the the temple's still around. The the Jews are also still persecuting the Christians along with the Romans. And he's basically saying, look, the Jews rejected Jesus, and now they're persecuting you because you are His people. But fear not, Jesus is coming to judge that that nation state of Israel. He's going to come and judge them, and he's going to vindicate himself by proving, basically proving to the Jews, you will look on him whom you have pierced. He will, he will prove to them that he is Messiah and Christ by his destruction of their holy city and temple through the use of pagan armies, and that also is the final obliteration historically of the old covenant replaced by the new covenant so that when christ died on the cross we have this spiritual new covenant has been begun we know you know faith in christ the new covenant by the blood of christ is real but it hasn't been historically vindicated yet and god is a god of history so so think about this this is why they had so many problems, why the New Testament was written, because there's so many problems with the Jews saying, oh, yeah, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but you got to get circumcised. You got to follow the law. Why? Because the temple still still there. Why was it so important? Because the temple was the center point, the heart and soul of the, the whole system of sacrifice and atonement and the old covenant system was rooted in the, in the temple. And so for Christ to come and say, that's all gone now. Christ once for all sacrifice, right? Well, they're like going, well, what are you talking about, right? Our God is a God of history. So God historically eliminates that, that, um, that physical historical embodiment of the co- old covenant by obliterating the temple, by desolating it. And, and of course, historically, that, after that point, Christianity exploded, Judaism shrunk, and Judaism changed to the point where mo- Judaism was no longer According to the Old Testament, it became rabbinical, and it was not even biblical anymore. Right. And so, but Christianity spread across the earth, right? And of course, then we had some problems. We did some bad things too. But uh, but that's that's the sort of so so. What I'm saying is the basic purpose of Revelation is to encourage the Christians that Christ was going to come in judgment on these people who who handed you over to the Romans, and he's also going to crush that beast, and he's going to judge. Um, he's going to basically divorce Israel and he's going to remarry the bride of Christ, which is the, the new covenant body of Christ. So that's, that's the whole purpose of Revelation from this partial preterist viewpoint. Now, now you can see why, oh, okay, so it's not a den- an inherent denial of, you know, whatever, whatever you think is 
some important things to believe about the end times, it's, it's simply a, a different way of seeing and understanding prophecy and scripture through this first century context. But it's not just arbitrary, as you can see. It's very, very heavy theological, and it all has to do with the new covenant and the beauty of the new covenant being validated, verified, and historically consummated by the, the physical historical destruction of the old covenant embodiment right and that's that's yeah that's really good um you know i've, I've never actually heard it from uh, those details at least presented in the way that you did and it's it's good it's good convincing arguments um now i mean there's no bible verses there that i really quoted right but right but, I, but uh, yeah the but, overall but yeah the overall perspective yeah. the the sort of art go the, new covenant yeah yeah <laughs> um now now in terms of Thanks, the history you know of, of the view itself if I project our audience, you know, if I, if I can hear our audience, I think they're, they're, they're throwing out Bible passages about the new heaven and the new earth and, you know, all yes. kinds of stuff. I mean, I, trust me, I can go on for days as you probably know, yep. and it, oh, yeah. it, it all comes from context and, you know, the, the presuppositions yep. of what you hold uh, shapes kind of how you interpret. But um, in terms of the view itself, the, at least this Wikipedia page here so, says that, uh, says that historically preterists and non-preterists have generally agreed that the Jesuit Louis de Alcazar, 1554 to 1613, wrote the first systematic preterist exposition of prophecy during the Counter-Reformation. Now, you know, putting aside the actual nitty-gritty of the arguments, I know a lot of people that will have trouble with, uh, you know, seeing a view or even considering a view that, is yeah. traced back to a Jesuit, especially in the uh, Counter-Reformation. Um, is that where you... <laughs> I am the beast! <laughs> you guys, I just want to ask you if you're willing to put a mark on your hand or your forehead, but it's, it's not a mark, it's just a computer chip. <laughs> it's just going to change to your DNA. PayPal. Yeah. No, but, but yeah, have you found... No, fair enough. Yeah, have you found writings or anything that seemed to go before that, or is that generally... Oh, a, no, absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Now, look, in terms of systematization... I, I'm not, I don't know, uh, I, I haven't studied the history of the systems. I do know that there are some great books out there already uh, by Francis Gummerlock, wrote The Early Church and the End of the World, and he, he actually goes through a lot of early church fathers who actually had preterist beliefs. The problem is this, is that you, I, you, you may not find a, uh, a particular system of really any of these views, you know, like if you go back in the ancient church fathers, you'll find elements, I would acknowledge, that you'll find some premillennial um, uh, notions and some amillennial, some postmillennial, uh, some preterist, you know. Um, they're not always the same as the way we interpret now, but they're basically those same, those same viewpoints. Like, for example, Eusebius is the famous historian, her church historian. And honestly, I don't, I don't remember his, his dates. I think he's 400 or something like that. And, and there are several others as well, uh, Sepulchus Severus, but that, that actually were partial preterists, particularly about Matthew 24, um, where Eusebius writes about how yeah, specifically, he says, you know, yeah, the church, uh, you know, when Nero came and, and 
uh, or when the Roman armies came against the city, uh, you know, the Christians left because they knew that Christ had said, uh, leave, flee to the mountains. And so they left and fled to Pella, the, the Mount Pella, which was a city of the Decapolis in the mountains, you know. And so he writes about those things, but it's kind of almost on an assumed, it's not like he does some exegetical right. uh, book on it or anything, but, but the, you see these assumptions go back, way back. But I would argue that really there's these same basic elements, some elements of all the views I think you could find them in, in the church fathers everywhere. So I, I don't really like, I don't really care about that so much as the scriptural argument, because the truth is, I think even if you go through the church fathers, you find just as many bizarre differences of interpretation opinions as we do today. So, you know, I mean, what's, what's the, you know, what's the point if, 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 if we're we're always disagreeing, and most of us are usually wrong through all of history. Sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's honestly how I how I think. By the way, I I would think of that. I thought that way when I was a premillennialist. In other words, I thought, yeah. okay, well, you know, so what? I mean, what matters is the scripture. But I mean, it does help to know. Well, what, what, did anybody teach this stuff? But there. But my point is, is that if Alcazar is the is, and by the way, by the way. There are, I don't know if you know this, but there are like thousands of volumes of Latin writers in, in, uh, in church history and stuff that have never been translated yet. They're just sitting there in the Vatican. Right, yeah. And it's, I, I, this isn't a conspiracy. I'm just saying there is a lot of writing that we, we, we don't even have access to, which is just like, oh, I just wish we could. But, but my point would be that... Well, they would give away the aliens. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go on. But uh, so anyway, so uh, yeah, that's this generally no matter what view you have, to be honest, I think there's a little bit of every view throughout. But there are definitely Alcazar is not the first one. There were guys before him who okay. actually did have the partial predators. Okay. Yeah, there's not a lot. There's not a lot. I, I won't deny that. And, and by the way, you know, this my view is a minority view and I'm not, I'm willing to admit that that's, that's totally fine. It's the right view, but it is a minority. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's a question for you and then I'll let Gons uh, spit some fire. And that is, you know, on a practical level, because when you think of the futurism view, um, you know, it, it, at least as far as the current Facebook culture is concerned, um, you know, there's a lot of practicality and pragmatism in the futurist view in that, you know, we watch news events and we decode, uh, you know, current events and we speculate on what this all means and who's the dragon and who, how many horns does Putin have and things like that. And it, we can look forward and it helps us to sort of see the Bible play out around us. It's a very practical viewpoint to have. Um, but as far as preterist or partial preterist, how does that play into the day-to-day -day life of a believer? These are great questions, you guys. Uh, I'm pretty they're good. very, they're, they're better, not better, but they're very different from, uh, the other podcasts I've been on. So this is a great, I appreciate the opportunity. Excellent question. In fact, this gives me the opportunity to, to say, this is why you guys and I have been able to be, uh, you know, good friends as we crossed our paths in the past um, and why we like each other because there's a sense in which we actually do overlap and, and that, that would be this. Um, the concerns that a futurist have, has about 
seeking out the evil in the modern world and how it leads to the Antichrist or whatever. Even though I don't believe there is going to be a future Antichrist and a future beast in, in terms of fulfilling Bible prophecy, I too share the concern that I believe human nature is evil, and I believe evil men are going to always try through all of history until Christ comes back to take control, rule the world, and do evil and kill people. So, you and I both have the same concerns about you know, the genetic manipulation, you know, all the things that you guys talk about. The only difference, you know, I, I, I have the same concern for the tyranny that man, that man accomplishes. And, and so you and I have the same concern about fighting evil and the belief that evil can, uh, the only way for evil to grow is for good men to do nothing, etc. So we, we, we find the same evil things in society. The difference is, I don't believe there is a fulfillment of prophecy in there, but I still agree with you that we should fight these things, you know? And I think that's where, where, where we have that, that commonality. But, but to answer the theological side of that, well, but what's your, what's your motivation or what, what do you have to offer to, to yeah, like what's the, the end game? For the future, yeah, the end game, exactly. Well, of course, you know, the end game is still the same end game because I would hope that, that you guys' concern is more about Christ than the Antichrist. And I, I, you know, I'm being facetious. Of course you do. But, but um, look, you guys, uh, I could reverse it and say I've known people who, you know, like back in the past, this is where, like in the 70s, you got to understand something. Uh, it was really huge. Um, Hal Lindsey basically made that major, major point that if the if um, uh, all of prophecy hinged on Israel becoming a nation in 1948, right, the whole fig tree thing and stuff, and well, what's a generation about? 40 years? Huh? That's about 88. They were expecting Christ to come by 88. Now they guys like Hal Lindsey would be careful not to not to be very specific about the date, but the truth is is he was. He was predicting that. Was he and, the one who wrote that book, like eighty-eight reasons? No, late great no, Why God is coming back? In yeah, no, that, that was Ed Wisenant. Yeah. Ah, yeah, that's what it was. Yeah, but but Hal Lindsey. But if you read, look his writings, he was not as foolish to be that specific. But he was basically saying the same thing. It was basically he was hinting at it. The eighties were the terminal generation, right? Why? Because eighty-eight is forty years from from you know Israel yeah. becoming a nation. So, so, um, what I'm getting, I hope I'm not getting too off topic here. So what I'm saying was, oh, so back at that time period, um, oh, I, I met people who would like adults who were saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to send my kids to college because Christ is coming back. And I, yeah, I realize that's an extreme, but it, it does, the thinking can pervade people's mindset where they, they no longer, and this is where I would say the danger would be, is if you're really focused on, well, this is all going to hell in a handbasket anyway, because the Antichrist is going to, so it's all going to burn, you're not going to care as much, you're, you're going to have a tendency, a danger, I'm not saying this is absolute, but you're going to have a danger of not wanting to work to make the world better, to fight for good, you know? And this isn't about, you know, creating the kingdom of God on earth, this is just basically, well, do you fight evil and do you you try to stop it because you can actually make things better, or do you say, "Well, Antichrist is coming anyway, so let's just go out and preach," you know? Right. Yeah. And there's that, that, that tendency to be like, "Well, the the Bible did say things were going to be awful, so there's nothing we can do." To I, stop I hear it. that we win in the end. I hear that one a lot. 
Yes, which is a yes. true statement, so, but it's, you know, it's, there's a apathetic uh, kind of ring to it, you know? Now, I, my, my tradition is a reformed tradition, okay? That's my bias, um, uh, and the, there's, there's, you know, it's not perfect. There's, I have problems with it, but I have that mentality, that mindset of the goal is to use, you, you use, I'm sorry, you, the transformation of your personal life results in the transformation of the society around you. Right. It's, the ref, it's reformation. It's reform. So I, I seek to reform society to make it better. Why? Because I want less babies aborted. Why do I fight for law? Why, you know, not, not me personally, but I, I believe in supporting Christian politicians, Christians, or like me, Christians in the media, Christians, uh, for example, politicians to go and fight for certain laws. Well, what does it matter? You know, the, the, everything's going to go down into hell anyway. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. Well, no. If you look in history, yeah, history is cyclical. There are crashes. Civilizations crash and burn, but civilizations also rise out of it, and and they they and they become better. And so there are that can actually occur, and it's worthy. Why? Because it's simply loving your neighbor. It's trying to save babies, trying to you know whatever. In addition to sharing the gospel, well, I still have the same burning desire to share the gospel, not because I think we might be raptured soon and you're all going to be left behind to be judged by God, but because you're all, we're all going to die and you're going to face God in judgment, you know, when you die, no matter, because we're all going to die. And right. so I have the same, you know, and this is where I'll, I'll acknowledge, I, but actually back in the seventies, I would say that uh, uh, the premillennial view, you know, that the Titanic thing, the Titanic view is what I would call it, or left behind. The truth is, is that those evangelical Christians were the most active in terms of making society better, fighting for better laws and all this kind of stuff. But now, I think a couple generations later, hmm, a couple generations past 1948, hmm. So now that it's a couple generations later, I think it's, it's been transforming and it's not as much about trying to fight for goodness in society. It's more about, from my perspective, I see a lot of... Uh, this, um, I don't know, um, not hunkering down or survive. Yeah, like a Christian survivalist mentality of because you don't believe it's you. you many will, futurists will not believe it can get better. Right. And I, I do acknowledge it can get worse. And to be honest with you, even from my viewpoint, sometimes, sometimes I look around me and I think maybe, maybe premillennialism is right. <laughs> it is getting worse. <laughs> um, but then, but, but objectively speaking, let's, let's look at all of history and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, um, yeah. it, that, yeah, things can get bad here, but things can also build out of the ashes, just like America was built out of the ashes of the, you know, the, the destruction going on in Europe. Right. So right. That, that can happen. I, I, you know what, but I'm not, I'm not, I don't really, I don't fret about that kind of stuff. My main concern is, 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 is it more important, you know, we need to be focused on the gospel and getting people to t turn their lives to Christ. And, and, and if, if our obsessions with details of fulfillments is taking time away, we've got to reevaluate ourselves, you know? So in other yeah. words, what I'm saying is it's fine to believe in, you know, antichrist coming, all that kind of stuff, but the gospel is, is the thing and it's the gospel that saves people. And that's what, that's what needs to get out of our mouths. And uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah. yeah totally well, that's, that's certainly something that uh, everybody can agree on. Um, now, Brian, I heard you in there. You spoke a little bit about some some cyclic 
cyclicism. And Gans, in his uh, sweet opening monologue, uh, made some <laughs> references, some references to you know cycles, and some be- people kind of believe that there's some sort of cycle involved in biblical prophecy. Um, Gans, this question is actually for you, maybe to get us started. Uh, can you give us a little bit of uh, an idea of what that particular your theory, whoever's theory it is, um, and maybe? Uh, yeah, what that what that looks like for you? Well, uh, for me, it seems like obviously you know when you look at the Predator's view, and I, again, I've looked at a couple lectures, listening to what you're saying here, Brian. Um, I definitely think that there was an immediate historical fulfillment of some of those things. I tend to think that the Bible is written; it's it's kind of sealed, right? There's there there isn't added canon, and it has this ability to transcend the immediate yes. culture and it has this ability to sort of speak to every generation in a way. And, and I see the downside mm-hmm. of that. Obviously, like you said, people saying every generation saying, Oh, this is the end. This is it. This is the final Jesus yeah. is coming. I can see where people can kind of go off the deep end or, or have those convictions because of some of the scriptures that are written, um, comparing it and overlapping it with geopolitical things or whatever is going on and coming to the conclusion that, yep, this is it. And doing, you know, whatever mathematical, you know, thing that you can do to figure out what year, whatever, you know, those things are a little too yeah. far in my opinion. I would never sit here and try to figure out what year the, the end is supposed to come because it clearly states that it, you know, nobody really knows. Um, right. so, so in that regard, I think that there are times in history, like you said, where things happen, you know, historically, uh, you have, like I said, in the beginning, you have these political, military, religious leaders, their institutions, they do things and, uh, you know, there's a good argument that can be made that Rome is the beast, you know, and like there's, there's uh-huh. good arguments for that. And I've seen great lectures where at the end of it, I'm like, oh, it's totally it. And then, you know, <laughs> I, I go study a different angle and I'm like, no, they're totally wrong. You know, so the, yeah. the, the search is always on. But in my opinion, there's looking at this from maybe a supernatural context of God giving us something that is eternal and the word is living. Right. And it's not to idolize the Bible and the word it's the words of the Bible itself, but that the word is supernatural in origin. And then coming from that mm-hmm. worldview, you know, I tend to think that over time in history, things happen that not necessarily fulfill to a T, but they echo or they, uh, mm-hmm. or, Parts of passages are fulfilled. You know, a lot of people talk about, you brought up the 1948 thing. Now, me personally, I have a very hard time reading some of those Old Testament passages and seeing that 1948 and the establishment of the modern nation state of Israel was a complete fulfillment of those passages because none of those things that are described there happened in my opinion, um, in the mm-hmm. founding of the 1948 nation state of Israel, where, you know, people were uh, washed clean and, and all kinds of things that are written there. And so I would say at best, it's a, it's a very partial fulfillment where, you know, half a verse is fulfilled, but there's all this other stuff that might still be fulfilled. And maybe you have a, a preterist or partial preterist perspective that, that gives it a different angle. Um, but sure. You know, again, I just tend to think that it's kind of like this interlocking Rubik's Cube type thing where, you know, over time, certain things happen, little pieces are fulfilled here and there that seem to reflect what's going on in the scriptures. And it doesn't mean that it's not a fulfillment, but it doesn't mean that it's the ultimate kind of fulfillment either. And ultimately, you look at the end of the book of Revelation and you find a new heaven and a new earth and, you know, uh, 
people dwelling with God and God dwelling on earth, which is a very important, you know, part of the thing that people don't really talk about is, uh, you know, it's not just, uh, you know, this ethereal thing where we have heaven now and then we live eternally. Yeah. There's actually a yeah, physical yeah. kind of thing that happens where the sun and moon don't need to give their light anymore because God's light shines and things like that, which again, we can get into that discussion of, uh, you know, do we take those things literally or not? But, um, but, but again, it, it, I, I tend to think that there is a, uh, a cycle, I guess is the word I keep kind of repeating myself yeah, in that way, word. but, but that's sort of the theory. And that's why I feel like, you know, right now my message and stuff on the YouTube channel and everything else has always been Christ at the center. We can agree on that. Um, I have particular convictions about, you know, where technology is headed. And, you know, I was thinking yeah. about like, what would it take for Brian to change his view? You know, if they rebuild a third temple and if they get a cyborg yeah. to stand in there and say, I am God, <laughs> would you change your view? And, you know, like that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'll change it if I'm in the air, in midair. <laughs> well, that was another one, because you had said, you know, that we're all going to die, but then there's that, you know, I think it's First Thessalonians 4, where it says those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together ah. with them. And uh, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on that, because I know you probably have something. But, but yeah, but I think this is a, another excellent um, point to explore, which is... Um, what you're describing, um, there's a very similar, uh, another dominant, I don't know if you call it dominant, one of the main th three views. I mentioned this pre-mill, amill, and post-mill. Amillennialism um, is a misnomer. It, it does, amill would mean without, but it technically doesn't mean without. What it actually means is there is not a physical uh, millennium that we're waiting for in the future. Mm. We are in the millennium of God's reign, because right now, Jesus, and this is undeniable, irrefutable, Christ is seated at the right hand of God on God's throne, reigning over all creation, and we are reigning by his side, because that's what the Bible says. So, spiritually speaking, the Amil says, you know, that we are in, we are in that millennial reign, and Christ will come at the end of that, um, but that doesn't mean everything's perfect. It just simply means Christ is reigning on earth, and, and, but he hasn't returned yet. I'm sorry, Christ is reigning from heaven, but he hasn't returned yet. Um, and within that amillennial school, there's what's called idealism. And idealism is a, is a way of interpreting revelation that is similar to what you described. And it basically, it, the approach is, and you know, the, you know this, this is, one of the most influential writers is Greg Gregory Beale. He wrote a commentary on Revelation, and um, I, I've used it as reference, but I haven't read the whole thing. But the viewpoint is basically that, yeah, Revelation is more about a transcendent view of history, and you know they believe that, in other words, the seven churches might represent seven periods of history rather than actual time periods, or it just you know, depending on the interpretation, they might just believe, no, the seven churches represent seven different cycles of how the church goes through history, you know, and then, you know, the, the, the notion of the beast and all this kind of stuff is the kind of thing that spiritually represents, you know, uh, very more ambiguously about uh, godless governments and fighting against God. And, and, and so it sees it as a more transcendent view, not necessarily, uh, pointing to specific historical events, but something for, that we can draw from because, because human nature continues on and that God is still operating through that in history and he will still come at the end. But nevertheless, it's, it's a much more, uh, uh, tr like you said, a transcendent 
sure. where you can then apply. Well, then, you know, like right now, you know, or, or shall we say, uh, if I was a premillennial uh, the last eight years, I might have thought Obama was the Antichrist. Um, and there are many people who did. As but, did we all. Yes. I never but, did. I'll go on record you know, and say but it. But nevertheless, okay, that, even but, if it's okay. not the literal beast or whatever, yeah. he certainly would, by many, would be considered to be a reflection of that sure. theme in Revelation. That does occur. And you could also say uh, Genghis Khan was that way. You know, that kind of right. thing. And right. so, um, and there, you know, I, look... Again, I I want to hold this. I want to hold my eschatology with in open hands because the bottom line is is I've been all the viewpoints throughout my life now, and and because of that, I you're tired. I'm even though I hold very strongly what I believe, I'm willing to listen and I'm willing to admit that I I know the holes in all the systems and I know the holes in my current system. So there's no perfect system, right. and you want to be you need we all need to be willing to you know, acknowledge the values of these other systems is all I'm yeah. getting at. So, yeah. where, whereas the, pre, the preterist view would tend to say, well, no, look, uh, there are, these are poetic references, but there's a reason why it's poetic, because Christians are being persecuted. If John, you know, the purpose of apocalyptic literature is to hide the truth from the unbeliever, but to uncover the truth to the believer, because if the uh, if the unbelievers knew what you were saying, then they would, you know, destroy all the letters and kill you, you know. And so they're, they're, he's writing it in code language for the Christians, so they would understand it, and um, and it's so it's very specifically about specific historical events. But that's still, but that's that still doesn't mean you can't wait. But that still means that you can get something out of it just because we may claim that the prophecies were fulfilled in the past doesn't mean they're irrelevant because the, the messianic prophecies of Christ were fulfilled in the past. But when we study them, we get something out of it, don't yeah. we? It's the same way, you know. So, so uh, yeah, so there's that, those two different takes on it. But, yeah, certainly I would actually that's, – that's why in a way I, I don't have a problem with the transcendent view. Sure. Because, again – we really would agree. I'm like, even if, even if, even if my particular interpretation of Revelation, where these events are occurred, even if, if it's if it's wrong, I still believe it teaches that you know, uh, when government is without Yahweh, government becomes the god, a false god, and tyrants become false gods who try to destroy God's people. All that stuff, I still think is true. Mm no matter what you believe. So I guess in that sense, there's an overlap with sure. that idealistic view or the cyclical view, you yeah. know? Um, but nevertheless, you know, there's, there's obviously, there are differences. And I, I, I do think that there, that, let, let me give you another, let me give you another example of like a, a worldview changing thing in Revelation, you know? And, and I acknowledge that there's debate for everything, but classic, first few verses of, of, of Revelation, um, Paul, you know, he's writing, and I think he reveals this is the one of the main purposes of the book. He says, "Behold, verse uh, Revelation one seven. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him." Now, I wanted to write an article about how two, uh, one simple word can change everything in the book of Revelation. Um, so. 
we'll talk about becoming on the clouds later. We need, we do need to address that because I think that's very significant to what we're talking about. Because surely that's the second coming, right? No, actually, I don't think it is. I think it's a judgment coming of Christ. But nevertheless, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Well, well who pierced him? Well, the Romans did, right? They crucified him. Well, no, the book of Acts says the Jews killed him right. along with the Romans. Yeah. And of course, then it says all the tribes of earth were well and kind of well. That word earth in Greek is gay. And actually, uh, it, when we read that word earth, what do you think of? You and I think of globe. That's what we think of. But that's right. not what the word means. The word actually means terra firma, as in like land, the earth that, that we're standing on in a generic sense. Now, it means many different things in different contexts, granted. But none of them mean the globe. And the word is actually often translated better as land. And think about this now. All the tribes of the earth, you're thinking immediately, well, everyone all over the earth. But if the word is all the tribes of the land, what does that remind you of? That's a very common reference to the tribes of Israel. Right. And who pierced them? The tribes of Israel. It's, and, and, he, and that's referring back to an old, what, what's the passage, Zechariah or whatever, you know? But, and, and they will mourn on account of him. He's saying, look, the, the Jews who rejected him and killed Messiah, you are going to mourn. You are going to be judged. And you are going to mourn for, for killing the very Messiah, the, all the tribes of the land. And then if you look that, if you change that word earth to land throughout the Revelation text, which, um, I, you know, Kenneth Gentry, who's a, a, a his, his commentary on Revelation is coming out this year. It is the going to be a game changer, the premier partial preterist commentary on Revelation. I've already read it. I'm reading through it twice. And. Anyway, he, he points this out, and he, he argues this point, and he does a really good job of saying that it mostly throughout the book of Revelation, there are a few times where it may be a more generic sense, but contextually, it's better to reinterpret the word earth as land, which then turns your whole interpretation around because you now realize the judgments that God is bringing is the judgments on the land of Israel, not the earth. And of course, what is the what is the judgment on the land of Israel, the first century in 70 AD when Rome came in and just flattened the whole, Isra the whole land of Israel and destroyed the temple and, and etc. And so it, it starts to make more sense and it's interesting how little single words can completely turn an interpretation around and, and, and mean something that you, that you never realized. Yeah, that's fascinating and you know, the more you look into uh, you know, the, the deep, deep ways to read the Bible and how far down you can go as far as the original languages and context, the more complicated things get. So <laughs> it's, it's a fun game to play. Um, here's a question. And I, I kind of have this question for both of you. Um, but you know, uh, I don't know. I'll put it out there and one of you guys can choose. I'm curious, Brian, from you, you know, you, you mentioned that you've gone through all sorts of different types of beliefs and you know the ins and outs and the holes in, in many of them. Now, my question for you is, what, what are the holes in preterism? What are the things that give you pause, that, that give you a second uh, to maybe not reconsider, but at least recognize that that's something that needs to be reconciled? And uh, Gons, I'm curious, what are some of the the more firm arguments for a futurist view? 
I'm not telling you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, you know, as long as we're having the conversation for people, you know, who are uh, maybe just learning about the ins and outs of preterism in this conversation, um, who may hold a futurist view, uh, I'm sure somebody out there has something we haven't addressed yet. Right. Um, but, you know, to, to have kind of a fair view of it, because we're, we're not necessarily here to defend or uh, attack any of the views. But I, yeah. I think it's a fascinating conversation to have to hear from uh, somebody who put preterism so eloquently himself, what uh, maybe one of the challenges, at least, to the system may be. Sure. Well, you kind of have me on the spot there because I, I kind of speak... Sp- um, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an answer in itself. No, I mean, but there is, you know, it's like as I studied, I'll, I'll, I'll be reading things. I'll go, oh, that's not a very good week. Yeah, it's not a very good argument. Like some guy's making some. But honestly, I, off the top of my head, I can't say. But I, I'm certainly, uh, I'm certainly genuine in saying that there are. I find holes through through the predator system. Yeah. Um, and, and and it's but sometimes it's more like specific things that you're interpreting, and you just go. Eh, that's kind of a weak one, you know, like my, my hero, you know, pick your hero of interpretation. You know, like mine's Ken Gentry. I don't agree with everything he says. And I'll read some of his arguments in, in Revelation. I'll go, that's eh, too weak, Ken. I don't, I don't, I don't agree, but I don't know what yeah. the answer is. You know, yeah, well, I, I'm just saying that that happens all the time um, with every system that I read, you know? Yeah. Well, um, I think but, that's healthy. Let me think there's anything on the top well, of my head. Well, while you're thinking about it, Gons, is there anything sticking out like a sore thumb um, on the futurism view that may may be a bastion of, uh, you know, foundational uh, facts or something or, or scripture that is would still hold somebody to futurism and not preterism? Yeah, no, there, there's definitely... Um some places, I mean, we can go all over the place. One of the things that are interesting, uh, an interesting passage, Acts one eleven, and uh, I'll just read the ESV, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I think this is uh, where two men dressed in white suddenly stood beside them, and, and, and uh, he says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And Yes. It's it's a very specific description of um, you know Jesus going up, the classic Jesus coming, yeah, back. the classic kind of Jesus coming back down. Um, what's your position on on the actual that, second coming? Good. Is it did he actually physically yeah, yeah. return and to fulfill some of this or? No, that's that's a good question. In fact, that I would say that's one of the that's one of the verses. That is one of the few verses that I go. Well, technically, I actually there is an answer for it, um, and that is that actually is. A reference to the second coming. It's not a reference to the judgment coming on Israel. On Israel, that is a reference to the second coming. Um, uh, however, it I would admit that there it does sound very similar, right, to what I would call the judgment coming. And so let that's where I would have to explain uh, some passages. Uh, you have to interpret them with, within context, and the the basic starting point is. If you go in the Old Testament first, and you just read the notion of, um, uh, let's see if I can find this, coming on the clouds. This is something that occurs in a lot of Bible prophecy passages, of Bible prophecy passages that occurred in the past. Um, 
at, at different times, God came on the clouds. So for instance, if I can find some while I'm looking up some here, just to give for an example. Um, okay. Oh, there it is. Yeah, sorry. Okay, here it is. Okay. Sorry about that. Okay, so, That's okay. so, so for example, in Ezekiel, when God comes against Egypt, he says, the day of the Lord is near. That, by the way, that's another thing people say, day of the Lord, that's the end of the world. No, the day of the Lord is a phrase that is used over and over again whenever God judges a nation or a people in history, he calls it the day of the Lord right. for that particular nation. So it's a generic term, actually, that means judgment. And he says, it will be a day of clouds. A sword will come upon Egypt um, against Israel when uh, or let's say this, against Assyria in 701 BC, Isaiah says um, he's going to judge Assyria, and he says, in cloudbursts, downpour, downpour and hailstones, God is coming, and it's a consuming fire. Um, in Micah 1, he talks about the Lord coming forth from his place. He will come down and tread the high places, and the valleys will split. Um, let's see. Like, I don't know why I can't find the passages that I'm used to referring to, but um, where is it? That's okay. Oh, yeah. oh. Okay, so anyway, so the point is, is that when, in the Old Testament, where I did a, this is a bad, this is a bad, uh, a bad few minutes here, because I, I, you know how like when you get a brain <laughs> okay. fart, you lose your place, and you don't know where you're, you can't find your place? But basically, too, too well. So, anyway, in my book, I, I actually do a study on this, where I, I I go through Old Testament passages when God goes against Egypt. It talks about, he says, I'm coming on the clouds to Egypt, um, or I'm coming in a cloud of fury or whatever. So, in other words, biblically, when God came in judgment upon other nations, he, two things would be occurring. He would be doing it through another nation, like in Isaiah 10, God came upon to judge Israel through the Assyrians, right? That's a very common thing. He judged Israel through the Babylonians, right? So in the first century, he's judging Israel through Rome. But the point is, is that God comes many times in, in, in the Old Testament. He comes on the clouds many times. Why? Because it's a generic phrase that is a reference, A, to his deity, because only storm gods come on the clouds in religious literature, and B, Strictly biblically speaking, whenever God judges a nation or a city, it, dis- it uses this cloud-coming language. And so if you look back, well, when Egypt was judged by God, did God literally physically come on the clouds? No. No, he didn't. He's, he came in the armies that were judging those nations. That's the language that's used in prophecy. Therefore, when you jump ahead into... Um, you know, into the New Testament, and you start to see this same language Jesus is using, right? You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in, in glory, and it's also in the context of what? Matthew 24, what does he say? I'm, I'm, I, truly I say to you that not one stone will be left of this temple. All will be taken down. And so, his cloud coming is that uh, vindication of his Messiahship upon the people who rejected him. And lo and behold, in the other places where this cloud coming is referred to, it beca- it's very clearly that's what he's talking about. Like if you look elsewhere in Matthew, he talks about how, um, you know, Matthew 26, he's before the high priest, right? And the high priest says, you know, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, I have s- you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, 
you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven from now on. And in Matthew 24, he's talking to his disciples and he says, look, you're going to be persecuted. Just flee to the next town. And I tell you, you will not have been gone through the towns of Israel before what? The Son of Man comes. And so, in other words, even Jesus himself was indicating, look, you guys, I'm coming within your lifetime, and I'm coming in power. I'm coming on the clouds of heaven. And what did I say earlier was the context was judgment. Um, The notion of coming on the clouds is judgment. And whenever Jesus talks to this generation, it's always in terms of judgment. And he's also telling them over and over again, look, I'm coming on the clouds. I'm seated at the right hand of power. And it's his, the, the cloud coming judgment is not the second coming. Now, of course, at the second coming, there will be a final judgment. And so, of course, there's going to be similarities between the two. And, and that's where the, um, you know, where you just have to, again, study to show yourself approved. You know, not all passages are talking about the second coming. Not all passages are talking about the cloud coming uh, in judgment on Jerusalem. But my main argument is, uh, most of the passages that many people think do have to do with the future are actually in that judgment, in that cloud coming judgment. So that's the, the, the first step in that direction of, of what I believe. So there is a, um, so in other words, to describe God coming on the clouds is a historical judgment described as a spiritual supernatural reality. So when God comes to, dis- to destroy uh, Israel and destroy the temple using the Roman armies, he, uh, that is the vindication of Christ at the right hand of power, and it's him coming on the clouds to judge. So cloud comings are not necessarily the second coming of Christ. Hmm. Um, what about, um, well, let me just, to respond to that a little bit, um, so you were saying that the Acts 1 passage is actually about the second coming, and you're saying it's not about just judgment. The cloud coming. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll use the term cloud coming is a reference to, uh, the cloud coming is a reference to the Jerusalem destruction in 70 AD versus the second, for, versus the return of Christ. Okay, and then when he says th- that he's going to return the same way you saw him go into heaven, uh, yes. you're, you're, you're saying that he's, that's his physical return, that he's like a, a literal yeah. descent down. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. That's, that's yeah. Now, now one, one, and one last thing, and this is the one I missed. This was the best one. I, I always do this. I always miss the best one. The Matthew 16, 27 and 28 is fascinating because this, this one's really loud and clear. He says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. Surely that's the second coming. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Surely that's the last judgment. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There it's, you know, whoa. I mean, he's literally talking to these people. Some of you standing here won't taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom with his angels in the glory of his Father. So in other words, that's, that is clearly to me a reference to the cloud coming because those people, again, this was within the, the next 30 years or so that he would come and, and he would 
come on the clouds and destroy that city, and that's what he's referring to. And that would make sense, because otherwise, what do you think? There's going to be eternal, like, some people in the crowd are, are like 2,000 years old right now, walking around on Earth? No. No. He's, I mean... <laughs> maybe! Maybe. God can do anything! <laughs> that, is the, that is the other alternative. I mean, I have read that scripture before, and, and yeah, I mean, it really is... Either something happened back then, or there somebody who was in that crowd is walking around figuring out how to use a Tesla automatic driving car and digging it, digging it pretty hard. I did talk to some guy uh, where he goes, and I've heard this before too, which which would be a cool idea for a movie. But uh, he said, you know how the the verse it says to John, you know, what is it? What is it to you if I should, uh, what is it like um, the guys were questioning Jesus at the last, at the Gospel of John at the very end, and he goes something like, um, what is it, uh, is it G- P- Peter? Yeah, Peter is complaining to Jesus and like, hey, hey, what about him? He goes, well, what is it to you if I, if I want him to be alive? He's talking about John. He says, what, right, what, right. what is it if I want him to be alive until I come? And so some guy says, my theory is, is that John is, is immortal and he's still living on the earth right now until the return of Christ. I thought, well, that would be a cool book. Or oh, a cool, yeah. Uh, there you go. Gone. That. That's our, that's oh, really? our yeah, his name's, series. His name's we L.A. Marzulli. We look for John. Oh yeah. really? What? Like that's his book? His yeah, book is his that? Nephilim uh, Chronicles or Nephilim Trilogy or whatever. Uh, one of the characters is John, and he never died in the in the story. In yeah. the story, it's not. Uh, it's obviously gotcha. fiction. Yeah, so yeah. Um, let's find him. We need to find John. <laughs> that is our new. We're starting a Kickstarter. Find John. If you if you want to find John, you donate a thousand dollars. Well, it's so, we'll, you know, get, I mean, we'll get his autograph for you. Look, the truth is, is like, you know, I, I've, I've talked to uh, like, okay, so, you know, Rob Skiba, okay, like he's a little bit nutty, but uh, uh, in fact, he, in fact <laughs> Sorry, he's crazy. Rob. In fact, he's crazy, but I love him. Uh, and, uh, um, but he actually, he actually, you know, talked to me about possibly working with him on a TV series about the Nephilim that he's trying to put together and stuff, you know, and I'm like, you know, of course, right? This is going to be the system that I completely do not believe in. But I'm like, yeah, heck yeah, because it would be a cool fictional story to tell. And to me, it's just fiction, you know? So I'm like, I wouldn't have a problem working on that TV show. Right. As long as it's, it's, I just see it as interesting fiction. Yeah, you know, it's Nephilim are making their way into all sorts of stuff going on right now. I think that show, I have never watched it, but I had, I, maybe we talked about it on Canary Cry News Talk. Uh, that show Supernatural has like Nephilim in it and stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. Have you, I like, haven't watched the series. Is it worth it? I, I haven't, haven't watched, watched it. it. I don't know. <laughs> I've just had people tell me. But uh, keep your eye out. And if you know anybody who can help me out, I'm still uh, working on my uh, smash sitcom hit, uh, Oops, I Married a Nephilim. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still shopping that one around. Um, if anybody has any contacts, please hit me up. Uh, this is really going to be the new... It's going to be the new uh, married with children. Only oh, he's an FLM. Wow, that's yeah, pretty uh, a good response to the culture. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Next question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do have a question about uh, mainly First Corinthians fifteen. I mean, it's a long chapter, so we don't have to go through everything. But yes. but it does talk about the resurrection of of the dead, right? Yes. And and that's yes, kind yes. of the for me. That's been a point of 
uh, I, I mean, if you call it preaching on videos and stuff, I, I really try to drive home some of this stuff because uh, it's part of the hope, you know, that we have in Christ that, yes. uh, you know, his resurrection represented that, you know, um, defeat over death. And uh, I do yes. think that it fulfilled those passages. At the same time, we are awaiting, you know, our imperishable bodies and things like that. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of theological Lego work that's done, you know, uh, in terms of timeline and tying it into the rapture. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff yeah. that come out of this. Uh, but I'm just curious to hear your perspective on uh, some of these supernatural aspects of, uh, you know, the dead in Christ rise first. If, uh, I mean, again, I don't know exactly where you place these verses sure. here, but uh, in a sort of a, uh, a group of people being resurrected, um, you know, meeting, yes. uh, I guess you can go to first Thessalonians as well, or second Thessalonians maybe, or maybe yeah, I think it's first Thessalonians five, uh, where it talks about, you know, meeting the Lord in the clouds and yes. things like that. Now, again, the, the cloud thing, right. But so yep. are you expecting a future resurrection and judgment? And at the same time, do you believe that in 70 AD, uh, as part of the uh, judgment process that, uh, you know, the, those who were dead in Christ rise first and caught up in the clouds and all that stuff. You think some of that took place supernaturally somehow or? Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, first Corinthians 15 is, uh, you know, probably the strongest, uh, classic passage that, uh, partial preterists, pretty much all agree does have to do with the second coming of Christ and the resurrection. Oh, so right. f- obviously full preterists tried to interpret not that way, right. but I, uh, I would be in total agreement with you about that passage. Um, and uh, you know, in terms of the Thessalonians five, you know, that traditionally has been considered also to be the resurrection. It's not the rapture. It's the resurrection. Right, right, I mean, right. cause it's Christ returning, you know? And, yeah. And the, you know, so, but on the other hand, there are, there are many, you know, and by the way, that, that's an example of a passage I haven't worked, worked out yet in my understanding, um, because, let's see if I can get there first, Thessalonians. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's, it's like the, uh, the quintessential raptor, ra- raptor, <laughs> rapture <laughs> passage, and, oops, I dropped my phone there. Yeah. Velocirapture. <laughs> That's a new doctrine. Less of rapture. <laughs> oh, okay. I know it is. Okay. Yeah. So, um, first Thessalonians five, there right? are, it's yeah. the Lord. Uh, I think so. But second Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness, that whole thing, yeah. I believe that has to do with the first century. So there's where, you know, it becomes, Oh, it's a little bit different, you know? And again, Christ, the problem is this, the parousia coming, coming is the difficult, thing because it doesn't in other words i mean look christ comes to each of the seven churches in different ways right, right? so christ coming we automatically assume it means the second coming second coming second coming. and we just have to realize well no it's there are fine distinctions there are nuances you know and i mean i think the bible a lot of the bible is that way you know um so that's that's one of the things to overcome because i think that there are uh but but i would admit i would admit there are fewer passages about the second about the return of christ than 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 i wish there was right. <laughs> I, mean, I wish there were more uh and it does seem like wow it doesn't say as much about that but i do you know think about this too um the new testament was <laughs> there are scholarly disagreement 
But there is strong evidence, strong argument, let's put it that way. J.A.T. Robinson, famous liberal uh, scholar, who argued that all the books of the New Testament were written before the destruction of the temple. And he lays out some really good arguments, mm. and, and one of the reasons why is because there is no mention of that. And that, that would have been so significant oh, yeah, that they argument. would have said something. And, 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 you know, they did it about the resurrection, right? When they're talking about in John, you know, he talks about, oh, you know, they didn't realize that G- later Jesus would resurrect from the dead, you know, because they had no problem referring to significant historical events. And the fact that there's nothing in reference to it um, is an indication. It's one of, one of the strong arguments. And there, there are more arguments for it. But, but my point here is that, um, uh, oh, so. So the context is this. So imagine the Christians, and by the way, since we're, you know, as a matter of fact, this is what my novel is about, um, is I'm, I'm really putting flesh into this conceptual context of it's around 60 AD, all the Christians are being persecuted, they're being wiped out, um, they're worried about, well, maybe it's, we're going to, Christianity is going to be gone, you know, and and most all the apostles are dead, and and yet they all know Jesus said that he was going to come and he was going to destroy the temple through the army, the Roman armies. Because in Luke twenty one, he says, "When when the Roman armies surround, well, when the armies surround you, right. it's the Roman armies. Um, you know that the desolation is near, and all this stuff. They knew that it was coming. They just didn't know when, and so they're under all this stress and all this pressure, and there's and they're hoping well, that will stop things. And so a lot of the a lot of the New Testament actually has that as its context." Um, is they're, they're writing to encourage them, it's coming, it's coming. The destruction that we told you, Christ coming and, des- and destroying the temple and stopping these enemies who have, who have been killing, it's coming. So just hold out, hold out. And sure enough, it did come. But, but what I want to get to was, um, I think I, I, I lost my place of thought here. Um, oh, okay, this is good. This is really good. Hebrews. Hebrews is, is like a really, really cool, cool book. So, so Hebrews is talking about, um, you know, how Christ and the new covenant is superior in every way. You know, Christ is the new te- is the temple. Christ is, you know, the high priest. Christ fulfills everything in the new. So in the in the old covenant. So like, why are you guys trying to go back to Judaism? You know, and so in Hebrews eight, he's talking about how glorious the new covenant is over the old covenant, for Christ has obtained a better ministry. That is, this is. Hebrews 8, 6, much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there wouldn't have been occasion for a second. And then he talks about the prophet, you know, the the Old Testament prophets that prophesied the new covenant. And then he says this, in speaking of a new covenant, this is verse 13, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Mm. What the heck does that mean? What well, makes perfect sense if that it's before 70 AD, all this Jewishness, let's, let's go back to the temple, let's do all these you know, atonement r- rituals and all this stuff. And he's saying, listen, the end of all this is coming. First of all, in Christ, it's not necessary, but it's coming. The new covenant replaces the old, the first is obsolete. But then he said, what is becoming obsolete and growing old 
is ready to vanish away, which means it hasn't vanished away. Well, what, is, what does he mean then? I think that the, the, the time period between the book of Acts, about 40 AD and 70 AD, that time period of 30 years, right? Uh, not the book of Acts, I'm sorry. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the destruction of the temple, that generation time period is the the time period of the, the, the fading away of the old covenant and the fading in of the new covenant. The old covenant was becoming obsolete and it was growing old. It, in other words, it's, he's saying it's in process right now as he's writing. It's growing old and it's ready to vanish away, which means it wasn't yet. So what, what I'm saying here is that 30-year period, that generation, is, is when the old is vanishing, the new is coming in, and what, what marks that, that actual accomplishment when it's vanished and old and totally gone the destruction of the temple. That was the final historical, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, completion of this tra- transformation of covenants. The old is fading out, the new is fading in, you know, that kind of a thing. So that, that was one of those neat, con- it's amazing when you, if you read the New Testament books, and if you take this, this uh, context of thinking, well, okay, they're, they're expecting that this, is probably going to be destroyed soon, and that's what they're looking for. You you start to see a lot of the weird things in the New Testament start to make sense. Like remember when Paul says, "Like I tell you, because of the present distress, it's better not to marry." It's like what? <laughs> you know, it's like what does that mean? Well, the distress—that's the tribulation. He's saying, "Look, it's you know, in the midst of the tribulation, Jesus promised it's best not to be married. Why? Because all hell is breaking loose." And ultimately, you know, that temple is going to be destroyed. So it's just don't get married. You know, wait until that stuff goes is is done. And remember in Acts where it talks about how, you know, oh Jerusalem they were they were um, selling all their goods and sharing them with everyone. You know, and Christians say or leftists Christians say, see that's socialism. You know, the Bible says that we should share all our goods and be in community. No, it's not. They knew that the Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. They didn't know when. So they're going, well, I'm not going to hold on to my house. Let's sell it, you know, because it's going to be destroyed. So let's just sell it and help each other out. They were expecting the destruction to be coming. They just didn't know when. So, it's, you know, it starts to make sense of some of these passages that seem weird if, if you don't consider that destruction of the temple as being a dominant sort of um paradigm right it's almost like a nexus point for where all the things hinge in terms of uh your perspective and so when you go through the book of revelation are you are you finding that uh, you know a lot of things line up with uh you know the the preterist perspective and i only ask because i have a couple passages that i want to throw (laughs) you just just to see well what you what you think about absolutely absolutely now yeah um I, I actually, it's interesting because I had kind of stayed away from Revelation because it's so complex right, and, yeah. and, you know, it's just a lot of work. And I kind of always hung out around Matthew 24. Let me tell you, Matthew 24 is so easy. I could, I can make you guys preterists if, if you let me walk you through Matthew 24. I'm making <laughs> it. It's so, it's the easiest one. So, but, and I always avoided Revelation because it's so much work. But I finally, because I was writing this novel series, I finally realized I got to really get into this and like, shocking, but it just happened to be that Ken Gentry is my friend, and he's like the premier partial predator scholar, and he happens to be 
just finishing up his two-volume commentary on Revelation. So for the first time, I finally went through from, you know, under someone's, you know, teaching that, that has thought through the things that I wouldn't even, you know, I wouldn't have the time to, you know, and, and just, it was truly amazing to me. I just thought, oh my gosh, this is a game changer. You know, just pe- if people read this, it's going to be really hard for them to, to really um, be anything but preterist. <laughs> but that said, you know, I still didn't agree with everything you said. I still think there's probably problems or things I don't understand. So throw it out and I'll give it a shot. Okay. So, <laughs> um, and this comes from the studies, um, largely done by Chris White that I, that I really tried to look into for myself and see if there's, and this had to do with the pre wrath rapture position, which is different from okay. pre trib. It's not post trib. It actually, the, the gotcha. basic premise is that the, um, the, what we call the rapture, it's not exactly that. It's just the resurrection of the dead in Christ rising first and all that meeting in the air that happens as a back-to-back event with the judgment of God. So there's kind of overlap there with the language of understanding judgment, understanding the day of the Lord means the beginning of judgment. It's not like a day, it's a period of time or whatever it is. So given that context and looking at that, um, you know, I've kind of thrown the phrase out there, sixth seal rapture, because you see the seals opening and there's actually a very good, through the study, you can see where, Matthew 24 lines up with a lot of the things outlined okay. in Revelation 6 with yep. the seals. So it's really interesting there. And then it's, it's during the fifth seal where the, uh, the, the souls under the altar saying, Hey God, when are you going to stop the bloodshed basically? Right. And, and that goes into that yep. whole 70, 80 thing where you know, a bunch of people were getting killed. Uh, so makes sense. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the sixth, uh, sorry, the sixth seal, I looked up and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became, wait, 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 where are we? Revelation, Revelation six, verse 12, but th- that's not actually the passage I want to throw at you, but it's, oh, it's okay. kind of the, the, okay. the setup. Um, the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became as black as sackcloth. The moon became full like blood. And that's, that's Got that it. signal point, right? That we read in Joel two and, you know, that's, yep. that's like the day of the Lord symbol. The sun will not give its light and the moon will be dark and all that stuff. And then the sky vanishes like a scroll, um, mountain and islands removed from its place. The Kings of the earth, you know, hiding because they're afraid of what's coming upon them. Um, and then interestingly, obviously, you know, revelation seven, you have the 144,000 and I would love to ask you about them as a separate question yeah. uh, because it's, it's very specific with all sure. the tribes. Um, but the one I was really interested in throwing at you was verse nine in chapter seven of revelation. Uh, after this, I looked and behold, and this is where th- uh, the pre wrath would argue that this is showing the rapture quote unquote event as it happens before this opening of the seventh seal. And, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. So this is a, a lot of people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. Where are we? Revelation. I lost. Sorry. Revelation seven. <laughs> Teacher, slow down. Oh, you jumped on. Yeah, seven. I jumped okay. Seven, I was still sorry. in six. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Ready? So seven, seven verse nine. And, and okay, onward. Gotcha. Gotcha. And gotcha. you know, yep. uh, where it says, I looked and behold great multitude that no one could number every nation. And that word nation is, you know, ethnos. So it can be race or ethnicity from all tribes and peoples and languages. It seems to include 
you know, more than yep. just the people in the immediate vicinity or yep. the tribes or, or, you know, because there's that contrast from before with the 144,000, you know, talking about them for the first eight verses. I'm just curious when you look at something like that, you know, it's kind of a heavenly uh, picture of what's yep. happening in heaven. Um, and having a multitude that no one could number, is that just colorful language? Is that, you know, cause it seems to me that this, the, 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 some of the data points there seem to suggest that it's a bigger event than maybe just, you know, the dead saints during AD 70. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, uh, it's interesting that you, yeah, I do actually think revelation, uh, matches up with Matthew 24. In fact, I think revelation is the, John's Olivet Discourse, because if you look in the Gospel of John, it's the only Gospel that doesn't have the Olivet Discourse. Right. Isn't it interesting? Yeah. Because Revelation is basically his extrapolation of all that. So, yeah, I, I principally uh, agree with that. Um, so, m- my understanding of this, again, you know, highly symbolic. As a matter of fact, I would say, you know, the, have you guys heard the the uh, the typical interpretation, you know, that everyone refers to? I can't remember who said it, but something like, you know, the, you, you should read the plain text, or the plain meaning of scripture, and, and only if, you know, the plain, the plain reading should dominate, but only if it's obvious and if for certain reasons should you then take it to be figurative. I can't remember how that, how the, how the, <laughs> hermeneutic goes, but a lot of people say that, and I think it's the opposite for Revelation. I think you should automatically assume it's symbolic, and only only after studying it can, should you conclude anything in it might might be literal, because um, the very first verse in Revelation, it says that the angel signified this to John, and that it's in the Greek. You don't see it in the in the English, but in the Greek, it's signified. So it's like he says right up front: these things are signs and symbols. The word semiotic is what the word is. So, um, so I'm coming at this. You know, it's really obvious to me that 144,000 is a symbolic number. Twelve times twelve times the perfect number thousand. You know, all that kind right. of stuff. Uh, it's just it's clearly symbolic, and. Uh, I take the 144,000 to basically be these are the um, these are the Jewish Christians actually who are ultimately um, going to be rescued because they leave Jerusalem and they're not going to be judged um, and and so but then while he's 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 talking about those but then. He, he expands beyond that, and it's what's called in, in prophecy, it's called the prophetic proleptic, meaning proleptic means it's a sort of a, um, a, uh, a projection into the future type of thing, or, or sort of like, well, this is where we're starting, and these, you know, these 144 are sealed, they're going to be protected because they're going to get out of Jerusalem, basically. They're not going to be uh, judged. Uh, but in fact, I also saw a great multitude that no one could number. In other words, now he's talking about the 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 extension of what the kingdom will ultimately result in. That's how I that's how I understand that. You know, um, meaning it's not just in, in other words. The, though John is is writing and and trying to encourage the Christians to to get out because God's coming to judge. He still, he doesn't just focus on them. He always is talking about the fact that but the gospel is relevant to all people and, 
you know, this isn't the, these 144,000 aren't the only ones, you know, um, et cetera. So that's kind of how, it, that's the big picture of how I see that at least. Okay. I mean, all the details and stuff, you know. Yeah, we can get bogged down. I don't know, I don't know if I could walk into, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, understand so. that. But yeah, I just wanted to throw a couple of these at you just to, just to see where you're at with but, them but, and, and, you know, see how. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. I, and, I, and I appreciate that, that you, you get that because it's like, you know, we, both of us could spend hours going through each oh, first, yeah, right? Yeah. We can go on forever. But yeah, in general, it's like the 144,000 of the Jewish Christians but then he also brings in, but the fact is, is there's, uh, you know, from every tribe and every nation, people are God's special people. So it's not just the Jews and Christians, the Jewish, I'm sorry, I'm blowing. It's not just the Jerusalem Christians, Jewish Christians that he cares about. The kingdom is for all people. Right. Yeah. You know, um, we, I think we can, you know, go on and have this conversation until, uh, yeah, until yeah. the Lord literally takes us out. Yeah. Um, at the same time, oh, oh by the way, wait, wait, but let me finish. I'm yeah, sorry. Uh, this is what I, I was, I was thinking. Wait, wait, what, what this is what I'm getting at. When he's talking about that great multitude in every nation, it says in verse 14, "These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation." Right. So, in other words, he's referring to the fact that they're from every time. In other words, all over the Roman Empire, Christians are persecuted. The, Christ, the Jews, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, are not the only ones being persecuted or attacked. There are many Christians who are persecuted throughout the Roman Empire. The ones who are going through the Great Tribulation, which was ne- the Neuronic Persecution, he's basically saying, look, it's not just Jerusalem, but throughout the whole empire, these all Christians from all nations are blessed by God. That's what I was getting at. I, I just was lo- losing my place. Okay. Yeah, that makes Sorry. sense. Um, you got it. You got it, bro. <laughs> um, th- there is bringing it to today. And, and again, I, you know, I can throw verses at you forever, so we won't do that. But... Um, I do want to bring it into kind of a now context and see what you think, because sure. I, I think, uh, based on some of the things that, you know, we study and look at in today's geopolitical climate or whatever you want to call it, um, yes. there, there's a lot of tension in the middle East. There are, uh, there are actually prophecies that are Talmudic prophecies and things that are, uh, you know, very interesting, and seem to reflect on some of the biblical prophecies and passages. And, and, you know, sometimes it takes a, a 180 view of it, you know, almost, almost like it's done on purpose. Uh, but, gotcha. but there are, um, concerns coming from many people who kind of look at the, you know, the darker things of, of the world, uh, <laughs> that there are a group of people who are very powerful and influential and that they are trying to bring about and fulfill uh, or, or make it look like they're fulfilling some prophecies. You know, this is an interesting thing because there is an argument that can be made that, um, uh, what is it? I think Basil said it before that a prophecy that is, uh, purposely brought forward is, is one that's fulfilled nonetheless or so- something like that, something along those lines where mm-hmm. it, it, it seems like the context or the premise that I have here is that the, modern and i don't want to this can get really ugly and and i can get in a lot of trouble for (laughs) saying things because semantics becomes a problem right because you say certain things about certain groups and you know people have a reaction to it um let's just say some political leaders uh political slash religious leaders are looking to make it look like they're fulfilling the old testament messianic prophecies and Given that context, there are New Testament passages and, and Old Testament passages, I believe, I, in my opinion, um, as a futurist, that seem to indicate that, hey, this sort of 
counter or, or you know, a, a fake version of these fulfillments is going to be presented. But, you know, here yeah. are things that you can look for to know that it's not the actual fulfillment. And, and you know, there's a passage in sure. Daniel 11, 40 through 45 that talks about the Antichrist figure, the man of sin uh, that we know him by will destroy the enemies of Israel. And, you know, there's a passage in Revelation 13, who can make war with him, right? The the beast, the mm-hmm. dragon. And you read these passages from Zechariah that talk about this conquest. <clears throat> and, you know, that's a known thing from a lot of Christians where they say, well, you know, the Jews didn't believe because they were looking for that military savior, right? They were looking for uh, right. who's going to take down Rome and who's going to, you know, instead of you know, their, yeah. their own temple being destroyed and judged. Right. So, so I can understand that perspective, but do you see any, I guess not dangers, but a, a, a possible problem there where, you know, you have Christians who believe sure. that there are certain, you know, believe a certain perspective. And then, you yeah. know, there are groups of people who may not believe the same thing, but are trying to bring about something that looks like that. Uh, I don't know what exactly what I'm trying to ask. I, mean, I guess I'm just saying, you know, I think, I, th- I think this falls under the category, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this may fall under that category of, um, of no, that doesn't fulfill prophecy gons, but it is evil. And I agree with you. You know what I mean? It, it, it's like, sure. I'm like, well, that's not the antichrist or the beast, but like people who are trying to, okay, let's use the Bible and let's use it to control people and we'll make ourselves out to be Messiah and all this stuff. That's completely evil and we got to fight it and stop it. I, I'm against tyrants. Sure. Uh, I mean, does that make sense? Yeah, does that I guess, I guess, answer? Yeah, but I, I guess, do you not take some I mean, of the I, principal I, passages that, that warn against that and say that, hey, this might apply to now? You know what I mean? Oh, oh, sure. Well, you know what? I guess this would be an example where um, I would say, uh, I would say, I we, I guess this does illustrate that even with different viewpoints, we can still draw the same principle from the passage. Sure, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, and that that's and I do I do consider that to be. Um, a blessing, I guess, or something like you know. In other words, okay. I, both of us learn whatever revelation means. Both of us learn that, you know, uh, tyrannical authorities and governments are like s- multiple-headed beasts that deserve to be destroyed and are evil, and and you know, Satan is behind them. I mean, I would believe all of that uh, in principle. I don't believe it's a specific fulfillment of the prophecy, but I learned that from how it was fulfilled in the first century in Rome and all that. But I, th- like again, like I said, since history goes in cycles and human nature is always the same until the until the end of of the of the universe, right? Um, then he, mankind is going to operate in the same ways, and so we can draw the same principles from the scriptures, even if it's already been fulfilled in the past. Uh, and I. I mean, I, I take that from lots of, you know, if you think about it, isn't that, isn't that how we learn from Old Testament prophecies in the past that were fulfilled? You know what I mean? Like uh, all these, you know, you read the prophets, you know, Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel, well, um, uh, which by the way, uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm thinking more, I'm not thinking of the, I'm thinking of the prophecies that we would all agree. Oh yeah, those were historically fulfilled. Oh, okay. You know, like uh, for instance, Daniel and the and the in the statue or whatever. I don't know. Just you know, oh yeah, these beasts had to do with uh, the Medo Persians right. and the Babylonians, right? All that kind of stuff. 
don't don't we agree that we even though that's already been fulfilled in the past, we still learn from principles out of how God operates with government. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think we all do. Yeah. And so that's that's how you and I, that's where you and I would have, a, again, a commonality, I guess, in that it's like, yeah, you know, I, I agree with you that there's a, something supernaturally, diabolically evil about about that attempt to, if, if I'm reading you correctly, you know, what you're saying yeah, here. Yeah. You're saying people are... Yeah, like they're trying to, to, to fulfill the passage because they know it's out there, and, and if they could be it, then they could get people to believe them or something, right? Well, yeah, something that's like, part of, is there specific, yeah, it's part of the deception. Is there a specific and, passage? Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I guess, I guess you know, taking Just, taking the generic sort of, you know, uh, do not be deceived, that happens over and over again. Paul warns people not okay. to be deceived over and over again, specifically regarding false Christs and false prophets, right? And, and, okay, and gotcha. that's... Yeah. I can understand the sort of more generic application of that. Um, but at the yes. same time, surrounding some of the things in Jerusalem, if there is, if there is, I'm, I'm saying if for, uh, for your sake, Brian, um, there yeah. are any actual you know, moments or, or reflections or pieces or fragments or whatever, whatever you want to call it that do indicate a future sort of fulfillment of a Matthew 24, for example. And I get it. I've, I've struggled with that where it's like, okay, well, this is clearly talking about, you know, Jesus is talking to his audience there. And given that context, the destruction of the temple in, in, in 70 AD really does make sense. And there are lots of things that click. Uh, yet, is sure. there, are there certain things from that kind of transcendent perspective, I guess, the ideological transcendent thing where sure. certain principles, like you said, um, and, and I would even, for me personally, I would go prophetically. Uh, not that, you know, a false prophet coming fulfills this prophecy and therefore there's no more, you know, purpose for that prophecy to even be written yeah. because it's been fulfilled. Not in that sense, but more of a, uh, you know, um, again, a cyclical or generic kind of way. It, it, I'm just picturing, and I, and I, again, we talk about these, uh, issues of transhumanism and DNA manipulation and all these things. And, and, you know, you're surrounded by people like that with, with us and Derek and, and Sharon. Yeah. So, so you're familiar with that totally. perspective. And, um, you know, it's just it, it, the idea of a false prophet or a false Christ given yeah. human enhancement, you know, is a, is a yes, very yes, different yes, yeah. kind of thing. And, and the other, okay, so let me, let me do this because this is the last question I'll have and I'll let Basil sort of, uh, come back into the conversation and land the plane here. But Matthew I just be Zelda on max difficulty. <laughs> I just, I just beat Zelda Ocarina of Time on Nintendo 64 on max difficulty during this oh, conversation. Gosh. So, wow. No, I'm just You're kidding. Really, really engaged in this deep <laughs> theological discussion. Um, no, I got a, I got a great one. So, okay. I'll wait for you. Okay. So, Matthew 24, right? There's that passage that uh, has become fairly popular in the sort of alternative underground okay. online church or whatever you want to call it. And that's the part about the days of Noah. So as in the days of Noah, right, so shall it be in right. the coming of the Son of Man and all this, all these things. And, and I get it. You know, most people look at that and the traditional interpretation is that, hey, you know, this is just, you know, business as usual. Things were just happening, blah, blah, blah. Yep, yep. But you know, Brian, you know that business <laughs> as usual in the days of Noah was not, yeah, it was not just I people did. walking around hitting each other with sticks, right? So, yeah. so how do you reconcile some of that and, and, you know, Jesus talking about, a specific period of time that was very interesting and, you know, very supernatural, if you want to even say, and then, 
uh, tying it to that. But then also right after that in verse 24, he talks about for false Christ and false prophets will arise, perform great signs and wonders and lead astray if possible, even the elect. Again, we can get into the whole elect thing, but how do you deal or not, I guess not deal, but how do you uh, respond to that whole paradigm of people who think that, Hey, uh, days of Noah, Jesus says it there, genetic manipulation, it's happening again. How can you deny that Jesus wasn't talking about the end there? Yes, no, no, that's that's a good question. Um, I actually write about this. I, I've been wanting to do a blog post on it, um, as in the as in the days of Noah, you know, because I'm part of the Nephilim nut crowd. So <laughs> I, uh, you know, yeah, I believe uh, that uh, you know the uh, sons of God are supernatural in Genesis six, and the Nephilim are giants, and it's freaky and weird. But I definitely believe that's what it's talking about. Um, and yet. Uh, when I study this passage, I do not come to that conclusion about which. By the way, this uh, I don't I don't I, I don't know if this is tied to my particular end times interpretation because I don't know that it matters to be honest with you. But um, I think just contextually in the passage, I do not believe that the days of Noah is a reference to their you know return of Nephilim or any, Nephilim or anything like that. And, and here's why: because Jesus. Like, like, um, Jesus actually tells you what the purpose of the example, what what the purpose of it is, what the meaning of it is that he's saying. He goes, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered, and they were all unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so the overall context there is precisely People are going about their normal lives and, and going and doing their things. In other words, when he talks about the days of Noah, what aspect of the days of Noah is he, going, is he referring to? Well, it has to do with going about rejecting the, the warnings and going about your normal life, just living life and, and doing the normal things. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't bring reference to any other aspect of it. So, to do, to do so is, in my opinion, to import. In other words, you can't just say, well, then everything that goes on in the days of Noah is what he's talking about. No, he's literally saying, this is the aspect I mean. It's they're do- going about their normal lives. And then all of a sudden they're judged. And then he goes, and that's what it's going to be like. Two men in the field, one's going to be taken. So um, then the next thing is, yeah, but what about marrying and giving in marriage? Marriage was the marriage of the sons of God. But that's not what it refers to. It doesn't refer to that. It's talking about eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So, in other words, if he was talking about the uh, supernatural sons of God marriage thing, I think it w- he would have made that clear. Uh, so, I think that the context is what makes me conclude, look, I wouldn't have any problem if there would be a return of the Nephilim, but I just don't think the context says that in there. And um, I'm, I'm familiar with the fact that people, you know, very much do, you know. But, um, yeah, so I, I just, uh, I don't see it in the context. Let's just put it that way. Okay. And that's fine. I mean, I, I again, these things aren't, like, concrete, you know. I don't think any of us are yeah, like, I know. oh, we know for you. sure. Um, well, let, well let, me, let me give you that the next passage is very interesting. Two men in the field, one taken, one left. Two women grinding in the mill, one will take and one left. Therefore, stay awake. You do not know the day your Lord is coming. All these passages, it's all about, you don't know when he's coming. He's going to come. He's going to come. Right. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So how can that have anything to do with anything other than 
He's simply saying all these different examples. He's saying people are going about their lives and then all of a sudden it hits them because they're not prepared. That's the whole point of what he's saying. And, and so to add anything, this is the, this would be my critique of, of, you know, um, of your viewpoint or whatever. This would be my challenge to your viewpoint is, is, um, when we go beyond the stated intent of the text, that's where I believe we can run into uh, um, uh, conspiracy theories, and we can import much more than what they were intending. And that's the danger that I see in a lot of the a lot of the futurist type stuff. Is there there is a lot of that connection of like, well, this word is used there, and context rules, in my opinion. And the context here is clearly multiple things that he's saying, and it repeats the same thing over and over again. It's basically, you're not ready, you're not ready because you're not prepared. And that's all, that's the message. But it's interesting that the verse after that, two men in the field, one will be taken, one left. Many people think that's the rapture, right? But it's like, no, it's not. It's the opposite, because if you think about this, um, Noah was not taken. Noah was left. It says that they were taken away in the flood, right? So, it, it, it wasn't Noah that was taken away. It, it, so, 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 see what I'm saying? is like the taking away is to judgment. And this is also a, a common phraseology that's used Go back and read the Old Testament passages when the first temple was destroyed and they were brought into exile. That's they, they use the same exact language. Like the the you know the people are working at their working at the mill or whatever, and they're taken away. They're taken away where to exile. In other words, the taking away is not the rapturing of the righteous. It's taking away those who are to be judged. So in other words, um, uh, uh, the in other words, that's what happened. When Rome came down, people who stayed didn't get out. Rome ended up just taking away a, a million. I think it said, I think Josephus said that they killed like a million Jews and then took 100,000 into slavery. They took them away. So this is the common phraseology that's used when, uh, uh, in the past, in the Old Te- Covenant, under the Old Testament, when... Um, when the first temple was destroyed, when they're taken away into exile. So I think that that's, so he's saying that the same thing's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. Right. You know? All right. Cool. Well, I mean, you know, uh, we can agree to disagree on some of those, those little Fair details, enough. which Fair is enough. fine. Fair enough. Um, and, well, and, I think, yeah. Uh, well, I was just going to say, and if you got something else, you, you should go for it. Cause, uh, I, I, I kind of have a big picture wrap up that I, that I, would like to hear Brian's response to. Sure. I, I guess, okay, let me just throw this in real quick. So, Abyss opening locust army um, already happened? Um, Busted. Gotcha. <laughs> no, no. Gotcha journalism. <laughs> no. no, actually, actually, yes, but you guys, you got to read the novel because the way I did it is so cool. <laughs> I am so proud. I am so proud, man. I, the way I brought it in, and I brought it into, like, stuff I stumbled upon re- while I was researching. I stumbled, like, I didn't know about this whole, I can't remember the word, uh, sh- the, the, the foundation stone. Do you guys know about the foundation stone in the Holy of Holies? You know the whole uh, Well of Souls from, uh, you know, Indiana Jones? Do you remember that? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. I didn't either, but anyway, but 
I can realize that, and, and some of this is mostly legend, but I, there is actually beneath the, the Holy Polies, there is actually some kind of cavernous, you know, um, caves and stuff like that. And that's what they call the Well of Souls, and that's what the Ark was supposed to be, right? Well, anyway, um, I didn't realize this, but but uh, there's all there's cool Jewish legends about that. But the the main thing is is that it's called the Foundation Stone, and it was supposedly. It, according to the Jewish legends, it was um, a co- the cornerstone, not the cornerstone, the foundation stone, which was in the Holy of Holies, which is what the Ark stood on, was over an opening to the abyss. And, um, and, and uh, this was the legends, obviously, right? But there's, there's caves under there, but obviously it's not, nothing that goes down to the abyss. But... Um, and then there's legends that David actually like sealed it up. You know, there's these battles with demons. And then Solomon, then, you know, in, 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 I can't remember which pseudepigrapha, the book of Solomon or something like that, talks about how Solomon has these powers over demons yeah. and he has his, his ring and all this kind of right. stuff. So I, I like combine those into my novel in such a cool way that you just got to read it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, though, but. But get back to this specifically. That's Revelation twenty, right? Um, I think it's a little earlier than that. But let me let me double check here. I think it might be. Oh no, that's when he's. I think it might be Revelation oh, nine. Oh. Okay, that okay. I was thinking when he was sealed up in the uh, yeah in the abyss. yeah the abyss when the, when he opened the abyss. Uh, let's see, verse two. Smoke rose yes, 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 from yes, the yes. bottomless pit, and uh, like a great yes, furnace. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Okay, so. Um, First of all, just so we know, uh, I do t- take the recapitulation view of Revelation, and what that means is um, there are two views uh, and multiple varieties of them. Uh, one is, is Revelation a chronological explanation of events that happen chronologically? Uh, or, as some scholars argue, it's a recapitulation, which means, no, it's a sort of it's a cyclical way of, of talking about the same thing from multiple perspectives. So, for instance, uh, the bottom line is, the view is, the, five, the seven seals... Right, the seals, trumpets, seven, and, and bowls all kind of are the same thing. Are rec- right. Yes, from different perspectives, and there are overlaps with them, right? So, in general, that I'm, I'm approaching that, and I do think that it has to do with the first century. And the opening of the shaft of the bottomless pit, it's really interesting. I won't go into detail exegesis, but one of the interesting things, basically, I think those, the, the, the locusts are, it's, it's a creative way of talking about, basically, the land is becoming demon-possessed. Um, but what's interesting about it, and, and think about that, too, because they rejected God, God's going to judge them. What, what did Jesus do? Uh, when he was cleansing Israel, when Messiah came, he cast out the demons to cleanse it because that's what Messiah does. Right. But now he's saying, I'm going to fill you with demons because I'm going to judge you. Because you see what I'm saying? So there's that trans- the transformation that's occurring there. But here's, here's the interesting thing, the scorpion and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so um, appearance of locusts, breath. Okay, so, but there's also this element of... You look at the, their descriptions, and it's a very symbolic, creative way of describing the uh, the armies of Rome 
And no, they're not. The armies of Rome are not hundreds of millions and all that. But, but the symbolism is they, they represent that demonic power that's coming upon them. And then it says they have tails and sting like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Um, the, the, uh, the actual final siege of Jerusalem was five months. And so um, that was like, this is like the climactic, um, the climax of that destruction is the last five months is when, because it, it actually took him three and a half years to, to, to subdue uh, Israel and, and then besiege Jerusalem. And then it took five months for them to actually enter the land and uh, I mean, not enter the land. They were already in the land. They were all, you know, wiping out all the different villages and everything and stuff. But then the final siege was like five months. And so this this has a lot of symbolism connected to the Roman armies and stuff. Um, but the Apollyon, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, his in he, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and Greek in Apollyon, and Abaddon means destroyer. Um, Ken Gentry makes some good arguments, you know, that, that Apollyon is basically Satan. Um, there are different views on that, but I take that view. And so Apollyon is the Satan character in my novel series. Just like in the, in, in the book of, um, I'm sorry, in, in my other previous novels, you know how Satan has different names, even in Jewish legends, like he's called Mastema, Diablos, right? Yeah. He's called Samael in different texts. So for fun, I in each of my different chronicles in the Nephilim books, I use different names for him. And one of the reasons why I did that was because the word Satan is just so full of, you know, preconceived notions in our own heads. It just I, I wanted to give people a fresh take on Satan. So I called him by these different names in the Belial, I called him in the in the book of Jesus Triumphant. So in this series he's Apollyon. And Apollyon is going to be the way he gets the key to the bottomless pit is so dang cool and i, I it's, it is original it is original but i but i say it because it doesn't just it's not just cool it actually fits the theology that's what blew me away so well that's awesome man and you know the more you you drop little pieces of your book in this uh talk here it, it really sounds it sounds fascinating it sounds awesome and it sounds like one of those sort of uh dan brown thrill rides coming from a guy who's never read dan brown um <laughs> but but, but also it's like Lord of the rings it's like Lord yeah. of the rings. i've got huge battles and i've got the satanic warfare spiritual warfare i mean and just like the previous novels you know it's it's really yeah. not much different actually that's awesome so i hope people out there uh check it out now i got one last thing here and you know because uh it's such a tense topic preterism and a lot of other things that we've talked about in this uh in this uh, i feel like we have to put a trigger warning at the beginning or something um but i want to thank you so much for the the way you handled it and and the eloquence with which you're able to explain those views you know it's hard because Futurism is not just a view of the future. It's not just a certain type of reading of Revelation and, and the Bible as a whole. Uh, at this point, especially in the crowd who listens to this show and, and others uh, that are available, you know, it really is a full-blown worldview where not only is futurism a theological concept, but it is uh, – it, 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 
affects how we see the world around us and how we interpret current events and things like that. So it's going to be a hard one for people to listen to it. And I understand. And for any listener who's made it this far, kudos on you for, for not just getting mad and turning it off. Cause a lot of times that's people's reaction. You know, when they start hearing someone saying something they don't agree with, we'll probably uh, get a comment they, too. I had to turn it off oh, when Brian spoke. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Sure. Only one of those, I'm sure. Only Only one. Um, but you know, I, I, I gotta say it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating, uh, way to look at things and, you know, certainly has, uh, uh, you got the stuff to back it up. So it's very interesting and gives people something to think about. What would you say to the futurists out there who have, somehow by god's good grace made it all the way through this podcast and you know maybe you know i'm not expecting anybody to uh change any views and i'm not even sure that you are here to evangelize a certain view because we all agree that uh, the the biggest concern that any believer should have is the gospel and the salvation of jesus christ and really neither of these uh opposing views uh disagree on that that. yeah (laughs) So that's wonderful. So what would you say to the futurist who's uh, listening right now and perhaps has begrudgingly made it this far and is just can't wait to leave? Nah, no, we'll give we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. They made it this far and maybe they're very uncomfortable. I'm not the heretic. You're the heretic. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I pitched you a soft one and this is what we get. <laughs> oh, no. it's all in good humor, folks. It's all of course. in good humor. Of course. Uh, but truthfully, yeah, you know, actually, of course, this is going to be funny again, but just buy my book. That's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> but truthfully, truthfully, this is one of the reasons why I'm, I, I, I am so excited about, I'm more excited about this series than I was my whole Nephilim series. And I thought I was excited about that one was because this is a really unique a unique series. It's it's never really. It has. Someone has written a series. Of, Hank Hanegraaff did write a, a few books on uh, novels on a preterist end uh, times view, you know, like this. But no one with the supernatural view that I'm that I have, you know, the 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 Michael Heiser, the unseen realm type thing, and and using the the, the amount of fantasy and fact uh, and 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 fiction that I use, but it really makes it the view come alive in a way that the massive amounts of, you know, research it takes to really, you know, learn all this stuff on your own can be overwhelming for a lot of Christians. And I think that if you want to experience the, the viewpoint in an entertaining way, but in a way that will make sense in the, in the context of a story, a story really helps to, it just really helps to embody, uh, you know, a theology better than a, a sermon does, you know? So, so, um, that's one of the reasons why I'm writing it is to sort of make it more experiential and, and connecting with people because it, it really hasn't been out there, you know? And um, so, so I guarantee it will be entertaining. Even if you don't end up agreeing with it, you won't feel you wasted your time. You'll actually have learned something from, from a different viewpoint, from an entertaining way and in a way that will um, make more sense than sometimes than just these hardcore theological books that can be difficult to follow. Yeah. All right. So if nothing else, the book will be a fun, exciting way to uh, see exactly how this, uh, this belief 
is uh, would actually play out in a in a story like scenario. So that's wonderful. But you know what? But but um, in terms of moral exhortation, though, in in the light of this, um, I I've I have stayed away from um, the uh, the end time stuff. You know, in fact, when I first started uh, my not my Nephilim series, you know, and I, I remember even talking with you guys and other guys. I pretty much I knew that everyone likes to make connections with the fut- with the Bible prophecy with Nephilim, and I would always just say, you know what, I- I'm I don't want to go there. I just let's just stick with the ancient stuff because you know I just didn't like to talk about prophecy a lot, you know, because there's oftentimes so much hostility and stuff. Um, but now I'm more willing to get out and talk about it because I've, I've I'm prepared for it, and like I said, I'm writing the novels on it, but. But I really want to encourage people, Christians to really um, to really try to have a humility about your own views and be willing and able to to listen to viewpoints that you don't agree with. I mean, it's that almost sounds pat, but um, look, when I first heard this, I called it heresy, so I'm guilty of, of it. I had to learn my lesson. But what I'm saying is, the, the kind of hostility that I've seen has been really, it, not a lot of it, it's, it's, but the little bit on, on Facebook and stuff when I put an ad for my book or something like that. Enough of, I get enough of it that really, really makes me concerned because you got to realize when you're throwing out, people don't realize the seriousness, I guess is what I'm getting to. You don't realize the seriousness of the things you're saying and the words you're saying. When you use a word like heresy, you're, you're damning someone to hell. And so, you, you don't want to be saying that of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Hey, look, you can say you're wrong. I disagree with you. Here's why. You know, whatever. That's fine. But when you, when you lash out with extreme statements like heresy and heretics and, and, you are really hurting your own spirituality because the Holy Spirit doesn't reside in in the rejection of the body of Christ and other believers, right? What does he say? If you hate your brother, the, how can the love of God abide in you, right? So this is the kind of thing that we need. We all need to be very careful of. Um, it's easier for me because I'm the I'm in the minority. I'm the one who kind of gets it. Um, uh, but now, I, from that experience, I can say, well, uh, wow, I've got to be careful in other areas of theology. When I hear people say goofy, wild things, you know, I've got to be very careful before I um, really am going to accuse them of something extreme like that, because that's a very dangerous spiritual uh, word and, and meaning behind it. And it's serious stuff, and it's not something to be done lightly. And I think that far too, you know, far too often we've we've just you know we've taken um taken the seriousness of these things too lightly you using it too uh flippantly you know yeah well that yeah. could be said about pretty much in our entire culture nowadays Jeez. you know but <laughs> yeah. I, I hear you oh yeah ab- absolutely everything yeah I, well, and, and you're right it, it hits everything i've been really it's it's really it's really disturbed me deeply the the you know we're we're becoming a society that is going to to end in a lot of violence simply because people don't don't want you to believe you know like people simply because you believe differently than them we see violence rising and that's what that's what concerns me because we've got a, our own version of that in christianity you know what i mean like politically right now it's like okay there's people 
young kids in colleges if because they don't like your politics they want to beat you up and burn buildings which will ultimately end in murder but it's like in the christian realm okay maybe it's not that extreme but we have our own version of hatred and version of um yeah i guess just hatred that again i get back to the scriptures and say if you get to the point where you're you having hatred for your brother or sister in christ the love of God does not abide in you, and that's a that's a very serious thing that I don't want to get into that situation. So let's try to be let's truly you know try to be open minded and and be or like you said earlier, be able to agree to disagree and have disagreements without having to cut off fellowship. You yeah. know, especially over that's these just, issues, right? These eschatological yeah, especially issues. Over the, Yes, it's heartbreaking. It's just heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Well, Brian, I got to say, this has just been a wonderful conversation. I'm so happy that we lured you onto the show after your uh, email in which you were you were afraid of your heresies. Um, <laughs> Please don't hurt me. But I, this uh, conversation is a great example of people with different, uh, you know, uh, beliefs. Uh, about certain theological things can come together and uh talk and and be brothers and friends and and uh you know not have such these types of things tear us apart from one another and separate us from the love of of Christ. So, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, buddy. Let us know where we can uh, get your book and check out all your cool stuff. Well, everything's at Amazon.com, baby, and and they're um, Kindle, paperback, and Audible uh, or audiobook. And if you want to know more about it before you buy it as well, you can just go to Godawa.com. That's my name, G-O-D-A-W-A.com, and and you know you can find the Chronicles of the Apocalypse tab and click on it. And I've got all kinds of cool pictures. I, I cast all my novels, so I put have like little pictures of of the of of the characters. I'm proud of this novel too. I love it. I've got free artwork. And I've got a lot of free scholarship articles and books that you can get related to the Chronicles of the Apocalypse, um, all free stuff to, to help you. So if you want to learn a little bit more before you go buy it, you can do that. And I also have some free books that you can get on, on my website as well. So There you go. Cool. Free is good. Well, thanks so much, buddy. And, you know, the, what is this, your fifth or sixth uh, visit to our show? Let me see. One, two, three, four, five. Number six Made it to number six. I think, that, I think that's a record. Good job. And we're uh, definitely going to get you back on because I'm sure you're going to keep pumping them out, baby. Oh, yeah. Thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> All right. Well, you have a wonderful rest of your life. <laughs> I don't know. It's just a new tagline I'm trying out. It's not working. It doesn't work. <laughs> All right, buddy. You have a good night. Well, there you have it, folks. That was just, I, I can't say enough how in, just pleasant and enjoyable that conversation was about such a heretical belief. So much so that you were playing video games in the middle of it. When we yes, started talking was... actual scripture, nitty gritty, you were like Mario or whatever was going on. Nah, that was a big fun joke. I was listening I'm intently. Just, but... I'm joking back at you. See, we Gee. can't tell, Gons. We can't tell if you're joking. Oh, really? I'm just kidding. Is that is that a thing? <laughs> is that really a thing? I don't know. Well, I know when it's a thing, but anyway, go on. Uh oh. All right. So uh, <laughs> go to email us at canarycryradio at gmail dot com to let us know if you know when Gonz is joking. Um, <laughs> but other than that, make I've sure to check out his book after this episode. Yes. 
Oh, don't say that. Somebody's going to uh, <laughs> soundbite you. Uh, we are prepared for all the Canary Cry Radio exposed videos, so uh, you guys can just <laughs> just get started on that real quick. Um, just but break also, down that, that episode art. You know, if all you, the occult symbols in the episode art if, there. There's been some great Canary Cry Radio uh, exposed videos lately. Um, but if you want to learn more or at least experience that thrill ride of a novel that sounds uh, like uh, his book is going to be, go ahead and do that. Amazon.com, Brian Gadawa, you'll find it there. Yeah. Um, thanks for everybody who's been leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. That's just so, so helpful. I, it's hard to make people understand how helpful that is. So if you have not yet left a rating and a review on Canary Cry Radio on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to us, please go do that. Uh, I would consider it a personal favor and you would get all the high fives I have to offer. If you guys feel that this episode and our show is edifying or entertaining or valuable to you in your life, uh, please consider going to canarycryradio.com slash support. And you can sign up for a monthly donation there. Or if commitment's not your thing, you, you can go ahead and make a one-time uh, donation. It's down at the bottom of the page. I know some people had a hard time finding it. It's down at the bottom. Um, otherwise, I guess I'll give another shout out to Canary Cry News Talk. Check it out. Face Like the Sun YouTube. Make sure to check that out. That's going off. And uh, thejoyspiracytheory.com and the Joyspiracy Theory on your iTunes and Stitcher and all that. It's, it's, it's all good stuff, eh, Guns? All fascinating, incredible things. Yeah, and just a fun, fun little teaser. I know I mentioned this on the last episode, I think, uh, but uh, I did this fun special episode with Gons right after he had his baby, and we talked about babies and f- and fatherhood and life and all oh, sorts st- of stuff. Still pitching that thing, huh? Well, you know, I don't think I've... I can't remember if I pitched it on this show or not, but I just want people to hear it. I know you're... Let's all learn about Gons and his baby troubles. Oh, um, but you can get that by... Well, well, now I'm pitching you. supporting a show that people haven't even heard. But <laughs> if you support okay. the Patreon for the Joyspiracy Theory, uh, you can get that episode and all sorts of other episodes as a thank you gift. You got anything else? Um, I don't think so. I mean, uh, okay. you know, I can ramble on about some random things if you want me to. Yeah, this is a long episode. We should probably call it. Um, just one last thing. I want to thank all of our supporters for just yes. your generous, your generous, generous donations and commitments to keeping this podcast going. Um, I know things have slowed down in recent times. Uh, that's partially because of Gonz's baby, car- partially because I, uh, have 17 uh, other businesses that you're trying to start. G- gain some weight. 12, I'm going to blame it on that. 12 startups. <laughs> No, if, if, if one of the startups would work, then I wouldn't have to start 12 of them. Um, so if you want to cure me of this startup fever, uh, you can support at Canary Cry Radio. Um, anyways, there you go. At the same time, because you're so stressed, you're stress eating and opening companies. It's, it is, you know, you know what the problem is? I found this delicious cheesy bread that Whole Foods bakes. And uh, I may or may not have a friend there who hooks it up in <laughs> 15 seconds in the microwave. Just this mushy, just delicious, cheesy bread. I cannot stop. Please pray for me. Yeah, especially Whole Foods. That thing must be, uh, you know, what, 10 bucks for the loaf? You know, I don't even know. 
You, I, you don't even if, know. Your friend hooks you up. You don't even pay for well, it. Well, if I'm going to be completely honest, um, it's it's part. It's it has to do with it's too old and they just throw it away anyways. So you're, and so somebody <laughs> you're eating old. Nobody wants bread. Yeah, it's bread. a day old. Somebody catches it before it goes into the garbage can and they pass it to me. Um, that's my life, people. That's, so yeah, um, say, like that's how you've <laughs> conducted yourself. Uh, you know, just catching all the little. But you know, hey, hey, I'm a vagrant. No, no, you're just you're you're. Um, I'm smart and thrifty, gross millennial hipster is what I am. So, (laughs) so if you want to rescue me from day old trash bread, you can support (laughs) it. It's just start naming reasons. Anyways. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Make sure to tune in next time to the next episode of Canary Cry Radio. But until you do think outside the cage. I have no problem if you want to, uh, you know, ask challenging questions and all that kind of stuff of my view. That's totally fine. I, I'm I'm totally happy with that. Just yeah. just so you know, there's no fear there. Yeah, yeah, no worries. And okay. um, I'll yeah, be extremely you know, we... condescending then. That's <laughs> <laughs> most of the time, you know, they'll they just give my viewpoint. You know, like even right. like Derek Gilbert. Well, that, see, I knew you were on those other shows, and I purposely didn't listen to it because I wanted to have this conversation. <laughs> Without Good. the yeah, get with, get fired up. We all know that we're brothers and friends here, so um, I yeah. probably won't have a firm stance, but I'll like make jokes. I, so. I actually have, I actually have a, 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 I don't know if it's a unique stance, but it's sort of, I don't know. I think there's a synthesis here where we can kind of get along. So I, I want to share that position. Well, don't somehow. say that beforehand. You want him to be scared. All right, <laughs> Brian. I have I have my concordance in front of me, and playing this wrong. And it's uh, you need to have him fearful, and then you bring out the sweet side. Okay. Well, I thought I was going to do it the other way. I thought you wanted me to be sweet first, and then oh, and, know, then, and pounce. then pounce. Yeah. Okay. Let's it. do that one. Let's <laughs> let's make him feel comfortable, and then get him. You guys, regular theological Abbott and Costello. <laughs> okay. All right. You guys. You guys. Are ready? Yeah. I'm ready. I got to remember how to start this show. We haven't done this in a couple of days. <laughs> That's <here>. true. So, <laughs> okay, here we go.